Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Forty-five percent of women in the in the UK or in the Western world die of heart disease, yeah. and yet it doesn't really remain on people's radar that yeah, much. Yeah, <laughs> everyone's I, still very fearful of, of cancer, and yeah, I'm not downplaying exactly. the cancer, but it's there are other even women with you unfortunately have breast cancer are more likely to die of heart disease. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast, the show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. My name is Dr. Rupi. I'm a medical doctor. I also study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me on this podcast where we explore multiple determinants of what allows you to live your best life. And remember, you can sign up to thedoctorskitchen.com for the newsletter where we give weekly recipes plus tips and hacks on how to improve your lifestyle today. Today, my guest is Hannah Short, Dr. Hannah Short, I should say, a GP and women's health specialist who has personal experience of surgical POI or primary ovarian insufficiency. Having undergone a total hysterectomy and bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy, which is basically removal of the womb, fallopian tubes, and ovaries at the age of just 35. She now sees patients from across the POI spectrum and uses a combination approach of both HRT medication and nutrition and lifestyle changes. She's an ambassador for the DAISY Network and Hannah has big aspirations to improve menopausal awareness and care across the country. This conversation is certainly very long, but I think we really needed to do a full-length discussion to give the huge topic of menopause and POI uh, sufficient attention. Um, we talk about so many different things today. We talk about um, the different types of symptoms, uh, obviously Hannah's story, low, low inflammation, how that's related to menopause, estrogen receptors and where you find them, particularly the brain, uh, the effects of soy, as well as you know whether soy is good or bad and what the misinformation is, the gut microbiota, obviously, and how that impacts the menopause, uh, the concept of estrogen dominance and why that's technically not uh, an accurate term. And actually, it's more about balance uh, and the fluctuation of estrogen levels that occur uh, peri and post menopause that you'll find out a lot, uh, a lot more about. 
We also talk about the impact of plant-based diets and the benefits of a plant-focused diet as well. Um, Hannah herself is a vegan, but she's not one that advocates veganism or plant-based for everyone. And I think it really comes down to individual choice, which is a concept that we'll refer to quite often in this, in this podcast as well. Um, we talk about supplements. We talk about um, the different types of HRT, body identical, bioidentical, and synthetic, uh, and the pros and cons of either. Um, and I mean, we talk about a lot of subjects. You're really going to get a, a, a full holistic understanding of uh, the menopause after this. Uh, and I really, really do appreciate Hannah coming down and, and sharing her time. You'll find all of the notes and the links uh, in this podcast on thedoctorskitchen.com. Remember, you can also check out the recipe that I made Hannah on YouTube. Um, I made her a tempeh Thai style um, salad with bean sprouts, um, a delicious marinade um, with uh, lemongrass, garlic, ginger. You're going to absolutely love it. Um, make sure you can check that out on the doctorskitchen.com uh, as well and subscribe for the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes. I've spoken enough. Onto the podcast. Dr. Hannah, thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate you coming down. Um, and I appreciate the list of foods that you said you like as well. <laughs> so even though it's the morning, I'm going to be cooking you um, a Thai style tempeh salad. So it's sort of like a play on Thai beef salad, but obviously you're plant-based. So we're going to go with tempeh. And I'm so glad you like tempeh because I've been wanting to use this for so long. I'm a big fan of this stuff. I think it's got a great texture. Um, you just need to hit it with loads of flavor. So. I'm gonna make a quick marinade um, that actually goes in after I've cooked the tempeh on a griddle pan um, with a little bit of coconut sugar, some chili, black pepper, um, grated lemongrass, garlic, ginger, quite a few ingredients, I know. Sounds uh, good. <laughs> some spring <laughs> onion, uh, and then put it all together with some other beautiful salad ingredients that we'll talk about in a sec. Okay. Sound so, good? Yeah, sounds excellent. Good, good, I'm glad. So. Um, you came really highly recommended from a friend of mine called Dr. Anita Mitra. I don't know if you've come across her. Uh, I know her work. You know I her know work, her, yeah. Her work, but I don't know her. So. Well, she's a big fan of yours. Because um, I was uh, in the gym with her and I was like, look, I, I really want to do an episode on the menopause and uh, eating for the menopause and, you know, just trying to talk through what, what the misinformation is out there and how we can actually give people some reliable information. And she said, you did definitely need to speak to uh, Dr. Hannah Shaw. She's got some great stuff and um, personal experience as well. So tell me, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, so I'm a GP, um, but I'm also a menopause specialist and a um, specialist in premenstrual disorders as well. And so that interest kind of comes about really from a personal experience. And I guess it isn't really where I thought I would end up or thought what I'd end up doing at all. Um, I went back to do medicine um, later. I was, I was 27 when I went to med school. And at that point, I actually was really interested in psychiatry, um, just because I've always found it really fascinating from an academic point of view, always been interested in psychology and things like that. Um, and I was also interested in how um, your mental health is affected by a menstrual cycle. Mm. Um, at that point, I wasn't really thinking about menopause, but I guess hormonal change generally. Yeah. Really interested in um, postnatal depression. Um, and when I was a medical student, did some uh, did, did a training bit with a liaison psychiatrist at Addenbrooke's 
um, in Cambridge. Oh. Um, and then I came down to Tower Hamlets and was sort of shadowing the perinatal mental health team. So that's where I was kind of heading. That's what I was really interested in doing. Um, but ultimately things kind of changed because I became kind of unwell myself. Um, I'd been quite, I'd struggled, I think, throughout my whole teenage years and 20s with pain as a result of endometriosis. Um, and uh, yeah, I just felt that that was kind of my life. I think, yeah. you know, basically two weeks a month, I was just crippled with pain. Mm. Um, I'd had several surgeries. I'd had various medical treatments, you know, including the pill and other hormonal treatments. Um, I tried every kind of complementary therapy out there that um, I, I, you know, felt and things had helped for short times, but mm. nothing had ever completely kind of got, got rid of the pain and the sickness and the fatigue and everything else that I suffered. Um, and I did go through periods when actually stuff was a bit more stable. Um, and that was right around the time that I applied to medical school. I was probably in a better place. Um, but I think probably the stress of medical school and actually the stress of being a junior doctor kind yeah. of set me back a bit. Yeah. Um, and then that's also when I, I did always have a little bit of PMS. So I'd kind of tend to feel a bit low and... Um, irrational I guess just mm. before periods um but I would always like well okay I, that was kind of manageable and I used to think well I'm probably feeling slightly anxious because I know that my period's gonna be awful I'm gonna be in so much pain yeah. I might have to miss um work or anything again you know because some, sometimes I you know was incapacitated completely mm. um but then the PMS kind of took off as well in my in my early 30s. Yeah. Um, and I suspect now it would probably be diagnosed as premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Right. So, you know, PMDD, because my anxiety was through the roof. Um, Which I, I must admit, I, I don't think I've come across PMDD before. Mm -hmm. um, certainly nothing that I've come across in medical school. I don't think we're um, taught about it really. Yeah, yeah. Um, would, would you mind telling us exactly what, what PMDD is? So it stands for premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, and there's it's a little bit of a contentious diagnosis because actually it was it was labelled as a psychiatric diagnosis in the state, so it's in the DSM five oh, as a right. depressive disorder, but actually it's got neuroendocrine roots. Um, it is essentially a severe form of of PMS or premenstrual syndrome. Um, and I think they are on a spectrum. Some people will say, "Oh no, it's nothing like PMS," but they are connected. Um, but there's lots of different um, things or root causes. So we think there's a genetic susceptibility mm -hmm. to it. So it's basically an acute hormone sensitivity. Um, so an abnormal reaction to normal hormonal to normal fluctuations. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of women and girls will be familiar with like premenstrual changes. So they might be aware that maybe their breasts get a bit tender, they might have headaches, they might feel a little bit irritable, a little bit tearful, perhaps a little bit irrational, a bit, a bit low. But for most people, Although it's not particularly pleasant, mm. it's not necessarily going to have a ne really negative impact on their quality of life. It's not going to stop them going to school or college or work. Um, not shouldn't be causing relationship problems, that yeah. kind of stuff. Mm. PMDD is, is kind of like the most extreme end. Um, some people, I suppose it is responsible for people, some people not being able to work at all mm. because they can't be reliable employees. So some people would shut themselves away completely or they can't contain um, their anger. Sometimes people become incredibly irritable and, and, and angry uh, during the, the premenstrual phase, the two weeks before the period. Um, other people will become suicidal um, or, you know, and then they'll kind of lock themselves away, will cancel social engagements, are completely unable to kind of function. Um, I mean, I'm, luckily for me, I wasn't quite as severe as, as, as some patients I've yeah. seen and, and some cases I know about, but I, I did have suicidal thoughts 
quite intense, intrusive thoughts at times. Um, and I did think, I don't know how I can go on feeling like this. Um, and you have to, it's very important for people to track their, their symptoms because obviously there are other, other syndromes or other illnesses that can kind of mimic that. So women are often misdiagnosed with things like bipolar disorder yeah. because of the cyclical nature. Um, so to get a true diagnosis of severe premenstrual disorder or PMDD, you need to kind of show that it clearly happens in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle okay. and it should then start to resolve or get better when your period comes. And a lot of women will say that it actually feels like a release when their period comes. Right. So before people start thinking, oh, that sounds like me, I'm irritable, yeah. I'm irrational, I, you know, I don't want to go to work. This is super severe. So this is right at the end of the yeah. spectrum where people are thinking, um, that, that they're suicidal. I mean, that's super extreme. Yeah, I think 30% of people with it attempt suicide. 30%. So wow. um, it, it is a big, it is an issue, um, but it's not recognised enough. Um, I mean, that we still don't fully understand the root causes. They have found a, a, a gene that seems to be linked and twin studies show that there's a heritability there. Okay. Um, there's also that we think it's an abnormal kind of reaction to the metabolites of progesterone, um, so allopregnenolone, which normally would um, affects the GABA receptors and normally has more of a calming response, has the opposite response in people with PMDD or most people with PMDD. Um, there's, there's, they've shown in imaging studies that there's changes in brain structure and function, but whether that's a cause or a result, or we don't know. Result, yeah, yeah. Um, there seem to be low, um, increased levels of inflammatory markers at baseline with, with some women with PMDD. Okay. Yeah. So there's like, there's, there's, there's like five main pieces really that is kind of mm -hmm. linked and stress and trauma are quite heavily linked, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have a background in yes. that, but that could be kind of a trigger. I suppose it's the whole epigenetic side of things really. Um, yeah. So yeah, but it affects five to 8% of menstruating women or, um, and it can affect trans, trans men as well obviously if they were assigned you know female at birth yeah. and they still have their ovaries yeah. then it could affect um, trans men as well so the key thing is tracking yeah. um but there's there are guidelines which a lot of doctors aren't aware about which yeah because i was going to say like i i don't remember getting much training on this uh at all i mean i don't think we get well i didn't get any yeah, and, yeah. um I, I, I didn't do it sounds crazy, but like I didn't do uh, an ONG placement during my GP training, which I think is so necessary. I, I did pediatrics, I did uh, gum, so gentle urinary yeah. medicine. I did a whole bunch of other things like acute med. But the one thing I really wish I did was ONG, uh, obstetrics yeah. and gynecology. Well, I know, well, it's the same where I trained in West Suffolk. You either did ONG or pediatrics. And right. I'd, done a, I'd done an ONG job um, when I was a foundation year doctor. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I didn't do it in my actual general practice training. So I did, I've did loads of, pe I've done so many, many peds jobs, but yeah. I haven't yeah. I've done three, three peds jobs, yeah. but, um, I yeah. Mean, it's very important. Peds, yes, obviously yeah. it's obviously it's important, but I think they're it's both really fundamental yeah, really, absolutely. aren't they? So, yeah. yeah, so we don't get much training. And mm. it, when I, I started off as a psychiatric, um, you know, tra trainee, mm. um, for various reasons, I chose to leave, leave that um, and then went into general practice. Mm. Um, but at the time, I, I was bringing papers showing about the relationship between estrogen and depression mm. and um, premenstrual mood disorder changes. And, um, but there wasn't very much interest. And it's not a routine thing to ask about yeah. menstrual cycle and mental health. Mm. 
So even, I mean, that was like 2011 when I was doing the psychiatry training and um, people generally weren't interested. And it's like, well, that's that's what we should leave to the, you know, to the gynecologist, endocrinologist. But I even saw um, a young man um, who was a psychiatric inpatient who had depression that was only responsive to testosterone. So I think we're probably missing a subset of men who struggle and he'd been so he was suicidal until he had adequate testosterone. Wow. I think that's such a a huge area, like you were saying, you know, the neuroendocrinology basis of um, psychiatric issues, uh, you know, which can be a symptom or, you know, a cause in, 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 in some cases. So I mean, there, no, there are there are guidelines out there for the P, for the for PMS and actually the whole spectrum of disorders. So there's like my, a mild premenstrual disorder, mm. um, then there's the the PMDD or core premenstrual disorder. There's premenstrual exacerbation, which is um, which you often need to differentiate from the PMDD. Mm. So you can have an underlying uh, mental health dis- um, condition or an underlying physical health condition. So epilepsy, asthma migraine that's worsened um, in the luteal phase Um, and actually then a treatment should be targeted towards the underlying condition rather than treating the the premenstrual exacerbation but obviously the two can coexist yeah yeah (laughs) and then there's a progestogen induced premenstrual disorder Uh which is the synthetic form of progesterone yeah so um so it doesn't even so it could even be natural progesterone so eutrogestan can sometimes induce it but um women who are particularly sensitive to progesterone and that does include a huge subset of the those who are diagnosed with PMDD right. um, also can react really negatively to exogenous progestogens in the pill um, or you know in HRT and then there's there's no link with cycles so there's that is where it's important so if there's no obvious link to exogenous hormones or cycles then you would think actually you're looking at an underlying psychiatric diagnosis Mm -hmm. it is quite complex and that's probably why a lot of people avoid it and i spoke at the rcgp a couple of weeks ago Uh and i think the the feedback generally is well actually it's it's helpful but it's just that 10 minutes it's really hard to differentiate so but that's our excuse i think for a lot of things if i'm if i'm honest hannah like you know even talking about the basis of diet and nutrition. Well, Ten minutes is, isn't long enough for anything. I, no, I know. <laughs> it's literally nothing, you know. Let alone, you know, a sexual history. Even even that, it's it's not long enough for anything. So I think there's a fundamental issue with just the consultation time, rather than the fact that we shouldn't be learning about it because it's someone else's or a different specialties yeah. realm. Um, but sorry, uh, we went down a bit. I of know. We <laughs> <laughs> yeah. were talking about your experience yeah. of uh, PMDD. Um, so, you, you, were you diagnosed with that, or is it on reflection that um, I was diagnosed with um, a severe premenstrual disorder? So, not technically PMDD, okay. because at that stage, I think it was still very much a term used in the US. Gotcha. So, this is like 2012, 2013. Um, but um, the, uh, luckily, I, I, I was referred to a very good gynecologist who's a specialist in that area and he made sure that I tracked my symptoms and and it was very clear that there was a cyclical pattern although one of the issues on my my particular case was that I never had regular periods so it wasn't like I could say every two weeks this is going to happen um there was semi-regular but it wasn't like okay you always know on this date this is going to happen but it was very clear there was that that my mood dipped I mean I never got I'm grateful I never got the anger side of stuff but I would get very very low and I do remember driving home from the hospital once and thinking there's no what's the point in any of this but I was never at the point that I would have actually done anything mm. but those thoughts were becoming still have those yeah they were becoming quite regular yeah. um and it wasn't like I got much let up when p- 
period came because I was in severe pain from the endometriosis, which obviously has a negative impact on your mood <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. And you're um, doing training, like, I, I mean, yeah. it sounds like a proper dire situation. And I, th I think it's the life of a junior doctor, as all of us are aware, is it's not exactly stress-free. Mm. Um, one, the job is inherently stressful, but two, the shift patterns. I mean, I didn't eat properly when I was training. Um, you know, you do night shifts and I go in and I take something healthy, but then I might end up leaving it in the doctor's mess and not have time to go back and get it. And then I go to a vending machine and there's only Snickers and Coke or yeah. something. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that probably didn't help. The lack of sleep didn't help. Um, but eventually, yeah, so having had all the recommended treatments in terms of the endometriosis and PMDD, they, or the premenstrual disorder, they, I was given something to try and switch off ovarian activity. I had a negative reaction to that. I got one of the rare side effects. Is it uh, gonadotrophin? Gonad <laughs> yeah. Uh, releasing hormone yeah. antagonists. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I, I experienced one of the negative side effects of that, and and so I had to stop. I had just very, very severe thirst. Oh really? And, yeah, unquenchable thirst. Oh, wow. So he said that meant I couldn't, I couldn't have any more of that. But any, and she referred me for a hysterectomy and removal of both ovaries, which is obviously a pretty major yeah, decision. Yeah, that's like literally last resort, like last chance saloon. Yeah, but I, I remember I begged him for that because really? I was yeah. so desperate. And yeah. I wrote, I, I, in some ways I feel slightly embarrassed about it now, but then I think about how I felt then because I felt I had no quality of life. Um, and You know, it's interesting because I wanted to talk about this a bit later about how some people and this is this is true of both men and women would feel a failure if they've done all the lifestyle uh things they take care of their health they eat well they meditate they do all this stuff and they still have to quote unquote resort to pharmaceuticals or yeah. interventions and i think that's like it's quite a negative way of thinking about it because in, in many cases they're really necessary and we should be grateful for the fact that we do have these interventions oh, definitely yeah because yeah. I, I feel sometimes like you know especially with this podcast and everything I do it's centered around self-care and looking after yourself and making sure you don't have to use medications but when they're there they're there and we should be entertaining that and using that appropriately right definitely no I, I think that's and I think as, as I'm a huge um you know found an advocate of lifestyle medicine and dietary interventions for those things but it they're not a miracle cure for mm. everybody and they're not they're part of the picture absolutely um it's the same with pharmaceuticals i don't think pharmaceuticals are a miracle answer for most things it's a combination of everything yeah, yeah. and i see it time and again in clinic um which i guess we'll come on to but i um people who are doing everything they feel they can and they're still struggling mm -hmm. and i think one of the problems with um uh, you know a, 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 conditions that are dependent on the menstrual cycle and hormonal fluctuations is that your motivation and your ability to make certain changes waxes and wanes throughout the month. Mm. So with endometriosis, there's quite a lot of evidence that you can, that exercise can help. Mm. But if you're crippled in pain for, yeah. two, for two weeks, and I remember forcing myself out about a week before my period was due mm. to go for a run. And I just, I collapsed halfway around this run in the village. I just couldn't, I couldn't move. I was in so much pain. And I just, but I felt like a failure because I was like, I can't, yeah. I can't do what I need to do. Mm. Um, when my mood was very low, I probably didn't make the best health choices in terms of food mm. because I just wanted comfort food yeah. or um, I'd have, I'd have a glass of wine because I felt really sad. Yeah. I don't know. And yeah. that obviously made it worse. Yeah. Um, and then, then you beat yourself up and then the next, then, then the cloud lifts a bit and you're like, okay, I'll do it again this time. But I see this again with my patients yeah. and 
sometimes you do need the either pharmaceutical or worst case scenario surgical intervention yeah. and then you're better able to put those lifestyle yeah. things in place well, so, I, I think almost like being a physician and being a patient or having had that patient experience makes you a lot more empathic as a doctor i mean my personal experiences with ill health have never left me and i always remember that sort of embarrassment feeling of being on you know a hospital bed being wheeled through a hospital in front of loads of people who weren't paying attention to me but still that really does stick with you and i think you know your personal experiences particularly as this is now your specialty makes you a much more empathic doctor and someone that's actually a lot more understanding because yeah sometimes you do crave those crap foods and there's nothing else you can do about it but you need to forgive yourself yeah. for that too and i think it's it does it definitely makes you more empathetic i think because and nothing's ever black and white i mean i gave a lecture on nutrition and kind of menopausal health a couple of years ago at king's college and somebody came up to me and she said well I she changed her diet and she said oh it made it made the biggest difference so she'd gone completely plant-based and, and I was like and I'm a big advocate for that and I said well that's amazing and I'm so pleased that it's helped and, that, and she said that's all women need to do and I said but it, it's not that black and white for yeah. everybody and it's not and I said I wish it were yeah. but I said it's disingenuous yeah. to say that if if you just change your diet or yeah. your lifestyle that everything else is going to sort itself out it's mm. a huge part of the answer and it help in it, but it's it's not the only answer and not for everyone Absolutely. so yeah so that's basically why i i mean i ended up further down the line doing yeah. sort of a long-winded answer to your question no, 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 but no, that was great i mean so so after you had your procedure that mm -hmm. wasn't the end of the road though right? no <laughs> <laughs> so obviously i had the surgery when i was there and that's in, yeah so that's when I was um, that was in 2013 and it was a massive decision we don't have children my husband and I um, and I don't think I was ever somebody massively maternal but I guess I spent so much of my 20s and early 30s feeling unwell I wasn't really on my radar and I was asked before the surgery you know do you want to freeze your eggs do you want something like that and I just couldn't wasn't in the right headspace and I was like no, I just want to get get on with the surgery and I naively thought surgery is you know this is it I, I stupid I don't know how I had this thought but I thought if everything's taken out and you you know the, the whole your ovaries are removed there's no more fluctuations you add, have some add back HRT and everything will be hunky-dory mm. obviously it's not quite yeah, simple yeah, yeah. and I think you know so I'll, I'll deal with everything then and um I think it was a massive wake-up call, you know, have the surgical menopause at a young age yeah. is a whole different ball game to a natural menopause 15 years later, yeah. which in itself can be difficult enough for a number of women. Because mm. um, you're removing part of your endocrine system. Um, and that's obviously everything's interconnected. So, you know, our thyroid function's connected, just our, our adrenal function, everything is everything is connected, really. Um, and. I don't think I'd, I'd appreciated that. And I don't think I was fully prepared for what early surgical menopause would be like. Um, and that you can't replicate healthy functioning ovaries or at least a healthy response um, to changing hormone levels and stuff with, with, with HRT if you've got, you know, if your ovaries have gone and you've got a hormone sensitivity condition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, I mean, I always knew I was gonna go on HRT because it's it's so important if yeah. you're able to at that age to protect your heart and your your um, your bones and your brain health and just quality of life. Um, but I didn't absorb the first lot of HRT. So I was having a, an estrogen gel and um, um, my levels were basically just at the bottom, oh, really? <laughs> bottomed out yeah, yeah. and I felt dreadful. Um, and it, it took me a long time to find something that has suited me. And I, I can't say I've ever found something that's 100%. Mm -hmm. 
I think with the underlying hormone sensitivity you get with a severe premenstrual disorder, it's never going to be as, as simple as it would yeah. be somebody without that. Um, so were, you, I, were your symptoms essentially the typical menopause symptoms that you that women experience, or? Um, a lot of them were, but I've never had hot flushes. So okay. the, the one the number one thing that I think a lot of people think about is hot mm. flushes mm. and um, night sweats. I, I do occasionally get night sweats, but that was what I was waiting for. But I got everything else. So right. severe kind of pain. Pains are really common menopausal symptom that a lot of people don't talk about, whether it's natural menopause or not. So muscle pain and, and bone pain um, affects 30% of women. Actually, it probably affects more, but it can be a significant symptom in about 30% of women. And especially with surgical menopause, it seems to be more severe. So my everything really hurt. Uh, and that's when I kind of knew that things really weren't right. I felt like I was about 90 getting out of bed. Um, and um, yeah, I had really bad headaches, which I'd never really had before. Um, and it just persistent chronic headache, not a migraine, but I just had a frontal headache that just never went away. Um, I'd get waves of anxiety and heart palpitations. Um, and that's really common anyway with, with natural menopause. But and I knew that's when my levels were very low, just extreme fatigue. Um, and a lot of people will talk about crashing fatigue. So you'll be sailing along okay. And then one minute it's like someone's pulled the plug. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, but dry skin, um, just yeah, the feeling of needing to go to, you know, pass urine all the time, like almost like a UTI type feeling, but there was no UTI because the lack of estrogen affects the tissues around there. Um, I mean, I guess it wasn't so much an, an issue for me personally, but obviously vaginal dryness is a big issue for, for lots of women. And to some people, it's their main, their main issue to the point that some people can't sit down comfortably, can't ride a bike. Can't, you know, people horse ride or something like that, they're yeah. no able to do those things because they might tear or bleed. And that's to do with the lack of estrogen. See, a lot of women can't really have um, a sex that's pain-free mm -hmm. because the lack of estrogen, lack of lubrication. So, um, I mean, I think I've had a fair few of the, you know, the main symptoms, but there's just a whole, there's so many out yeah, there exactly. that our people aren't aware about. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone's different depending on their sensitivities to lack of hormones yeah. post-menopause, whether it be surgical or otherwise. And it sounds to me like what you expected uh, your journey to sort of come to an end to is really just the beginning of another one. Definitely. <laughs> um, and I think it isn't just as simple as, okay, you start some HRT and just get on with it. Yeah. And it, it's, it really kind of opened my eyes to that. I think I was naive, but then I was so desperate to feel better. And to be fair, I'd done better than yeah. I was. Yeah. And I'm, I'm now like six, seven years down the line. I'm definitely in a much better place now, um, but it's taken me quite a long time to get there. Um, and I think there's not enough recognition that surgical menopause is, is a whole different ball game to yeah. natural menopause. And menopause at a younger age needs to be taken very seriously. Yeah. I see women all the time who are told you're too young to be menopausal, but it can happen to women in their teens. This is when it's slightly different, not necessarily surgical menopause, yeah. but the premature ovarian insufficiency. Yeah, we should probably talk about that. So we should talk about the differences between um, uh, natural menopause, uh, POI, pr mm -hmm. primary ovarian insufficiency, which is primarily what you see in your clinic, is that correct? Um, I see a mixture of, uh -huh. of stuff. So I see a lot of women who are naturally menopausal, but I am seeing increasing numbers of women who are 
POI, so that's menopause below the age of 40, um, and those with surgical menopause or with a history of cancer and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And so the differences between them, so natural menopause is something that um, generally you'd yeah. see over an age group of 45, if I'm correct? So, yeah, so the average, so menopause in terms of the terminology can get a bit confusing. Mm. So menopause is technically one year after your final menstrual period. Yeah. So the average age in the UK is 51, um, but any time from 45 is considered normal. Mm -hmm. But in the lead up to that, um, it's that's called the perimenopause. And that's when your hormone levels start to change. There'll be fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone levels. And it's as your ovaries are kind of starting to wind down their function and you're no longer gonna be as fertile. Although it's important to know people can still conceive in perimenopause and it's not time to kind of abandon contraception yeah, and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. But um, certainly your ovaries are no longer functioning as they once were and that you're going to get these this big kind of up and down swing it's and, and a lot of women will notice that actually from their late 30s early 40s onwards mm -hmm. some won't because yeah. they but probably those ones who don't have a genetic susceptibility uh -huh. to the, the sensitivity there but um so that perimenopause is just the changing levels and then postmenopause is after you've had your menopause yeah. um but yeah, it's essentially when the ovarian hormones kind of dwindle down, you're no longer you know, ovulating, producing eggs, no longer fertile. Yeah. So. And POI is a specific scenario where, or with the, there are a number of different uh, reasons as to why someone might go through POI, right? Mm -hmm. So POI isn't technically menopause, um, a true pre um, premature ovarian insufficiency, mm -hmm. because some women ovarian um, function can fluctuate and very occasionally women can conceive. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas if you're truly menopausal, you're no longer going to be fertile. Um, but premature ovarian insufficiency is when essentially, yes, your ovaries just are not working sufficiently. Um, and the symptoms are very, very similar to, um, to, to, to an, you know, natural menopause, but it just occurs at a much younger age. Mm -hmm. So, um, as I would say, the symptoms are similar. Oh, interestingly, though, things like hot flushes and things are not probably quite as common. It's often more things like the fatigue and mood changes and and other things that can be more more common as well um, at, at that stage. And that's one something that people aren't aware about in um, perimenopause. Often mood changes start before anything like hot flushes and night sweats and, and stuff happen. So um, a lot of people aren't aware of that. So the, the symptoms are similar, but they're not, it's, it's not always as obvious. And that's why if, if somebody's having menstrual irregularities, so their periods are becoming less regular, or maybe they've struggled to conceive, because that, that's often when women might find out that, that, that they've got POI, um, they should have a number of blood tests and looking at things like thyroid function as well. Um, and so there's certain criteria you have to meet to have that diagnosis um, and you need to have raised FHH levels um, with the follicle stimulating hormone levels um, at least uh, four to six weeks apart consistently to, and to have a diagnosis and a low level of oestrogen. Um, but it takes, very, it takes a long time for women to get diagnosed and a lot of women are told their symptoms are signs of stress and things like that. So, yeah. and it's, it's a real... <laughs> It's a concern because I think if women aren't treated properly, it has a long-term impact on their quality of life, but also their chronic disease their risk. Chronic disease yeah, exactly. Yeah, we are going to get into that. I just want to bring you back to this recipe I'm making. It looks good. <laughs> so, uh, just to recap, I've just grilled the tempeh with a little bit of sesame oil on um, the griddle pan here, um, and I've basically bathed that in a marinade afterwards, so it soaks up all the flavours of. The lemongrass, garlic, ginger, bit of tamari, 
uh, some sugar, some coconut sugar that I've used. It's got that beautiful earthiness. Um, and I've just thrown it together with some bean sprouts that I've blanched in hot water. That's all I've done, just taken it out. Um, some pea shoots, uh, some finely sliced red peppers, some, uh, ca uh, some carrots, and I'm just tossing some cashews on the top and I'm not going to give it to you in this bowl because <laughs> it's massive but uh, I'll, I'll serve it to you in this small one here and I'll let you have a taste thank you uh, and then we'll have a break and then we'll carry okay. on <laughs> it looks delicious pop this here. so tempeh I'm really glad you, you asked for tempeh because no one asks for tempeh everyone thinks it tastes bland but it's dep it depends on like what you cook it how you cook it yeah. how you prepare it like it's actually really delicious ingredients so. well it's i think it's, it's so healthy as well as in this gets this the fermented soy it's the minimally processed soya isn't it Absolutely. and um, so many health benefits but i i think i probably would have been skeptical many years ago but i've got a friend who's an amazing kind of vegan chef and yeah. she she makes her own tempeh and she makes black bean tempeh and stuff as well and so she converted me to it um and yeah and then there's a couple of places in cambridge where they serve amazing kind of tempeh sandwiches and it's yeah. just i was a convert and I've just started cooking it at home a bit more. And I don't, if you steam it for 20 minutes, that often mm. gets rid of the bitterness. So I think oh, really? sometimes people don't always, it doesn't always have to happen, yeah. but sometimes that's why people don't like it. So Interesting, yeah. There's a really Temp nice recipe with, with tempeh piccata that I do. Oh, nice. And um, yeah, you steam it first of all. And oh, you have to send that to me. I will me. do it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, let me give this to you. I'll give you a oh, fork you. as well. You can try it. Don't worry, I won't make you eat the whole thing on the pod. Uh, here you go. <laughs> you. you can give me your honest opinion of the tempeh. I have never steamed tempeh before. I've always just like thrown it together in like shawarmas uh, with loads of like, you know, sesame and paste and all that kind of stuff. Um, some greens and yeah, so. It's delicious. Good. I love <laughs> the flavors, they're lovely, they're really nice. Good, good, I'm glad. How was your breakfast slash lunch? It was it was delicious. Thank yeah. you very much. I polished it off. <laughs> I'm glad. There's no food waste here. There is not, no. I'll give you the recipe, don't worry. Thank It'll you. be on the website as well. And I want your piccata recipe as well. Picata, is that piccata like the Spanish piccata where you, you, you blend like um, garlic, almonds and parsley? Is that, is that it's, what it is? It or? doesn't have any almonds. It's got um, capers. Oh, and nice. Okay. It's, it's actually is, um, a Chloe Coscarelli recipe. Oh. So it's in her book, but it's, it's really nice. It, it's managed to convert my husband to tempeh because he didn't like it until that recipe. Nice. <laughs> so. I do like using capers and pistachios. It's kind of like a Sicilian Italian oh, that thing. Sounds I think. Nice. Yeah. 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 So, no, there's no nuts in it, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good recipe. Nice. So that's a standard now. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so we were talking earlier about uh, your personal story, mm -hmm. which I think is super important to highlight. Highlight, um, and thank you for that as well. We talked a little bit about symptoms, but just in the break, we we're talking about how, you know, just because we don't mention certain symptoms like vaginal dryness, for example, or uh, libido, doesn't mm -hmm. mean that those symptoms are less important. I think every symptom is as important as it is to that individual. Mm -hmm. And this is something that you see in clinic, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I kind of, as I said before, hot flushes for me have never been an issue. And I'm very grateful for that. Although I remember at times I've thought, well, I'd switch the anxiety and the palpitations I sometimes get for hot flushes. But having said that, mm -hmm. For some women, the hot flushes are so debilitating, um, affecting people throughout, you know, every 20 minutes or waking them through the night, drenching bed, you know, their bedclothes and things like that. And it's just very much in individual. And so for what one person would say, I'd happily swap this symptom for that. We don't 
you, you have to be in another person's shoes to judge really and I think the thing about menopause and about um, premenstrual disorders and or just about ho hormonally related conditions anyway that they, they can affect any part of the body. Um, we've got hormone receptors just you know throughout. So the estrogen receptors in the, obviously in the brain, in the gut, in your lungs and your skin, in your eyes, everything. So and I've seen one lady and her main symptom was dry eyes, but to the point that they were driving her literally to distraction mm -hmm. and, and then inducing a kind of a panic because of that. And I think, you know, if people say, oh gosh, dry eyes, it's not a big deal. But I think if, if it's the first thing you notice when you wake up and your eyes are constantly uncomfortable, and you can imagine it is very debilitating. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think, and, and some people it's the digestive upset you can get with, with the change in hormones that, that can be really debilitating too. Other people, um, like the, the pain, I've had one, one um, patient with severe pain in her hands and she used to play the violin and loved to garden and knit. And the three things that she loved most were being affected. She didn't have hot flushes. She didn't feel particularly anxious, but the pain was making her, and estrogen replacement for her was re really helped gonna get her quality of life back. Absolutely, so. yeah. To your point, you know, it's about the impact of that particular symptom to someone's daily activities they're living, yeah. their, their quality of life, their enjoyment of life. So yeah, whether it is something as trivial sounding as dry eye, it can actually have a huge impact on someone's mental health. Um, Definitely, yeah. I'd like to, so I have a little mnemonic about the symptoms <laughs> of menopause. So it's, it's all the M. So it's um, uh, mood, um, muscles, so muscle pain, um, there's a vasomotor, mm -hmm. mop, hair, yeah. hair loss, um, and a whole bunch of others. But there, there are a whole bunch of different symptoms that you said because mm. of the estrogen receptors that were found across the body. Um, it sounds to me like you uh, learned a bit more about lifestyle measures prior to your own procedure. It seems like you went into your procedure like, you know, with sort of a lot of information. You tried herbal supplements, you tried those different activities. Is that when you ha kind of had your light bulb moment towards lifestyle medicine or did it co come after the, the surgical intervention that you had? Um I've always, always had an interest in I think, things like nutrition and um, kind of complementary therapies alongside mm. traditional medical therapies. And I actually trained as an aromatherapist before I did really? medicine. <laughs> yeah. So when I, I was working in the city, which was the other thing I was doing before I did medicine, yeah. um, I, I did an aromatherapy course. So I qualified as an aromatherapist and massage therapist. And I was particularly interested um, um, in that point in, in kind of how the oils um, worked on the kind of a biochemical level and the evidence around that. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't so interested in the massage, although I appreciated it had its benefits, but it was more about the oils. And that stemmed from when I was around 15 or 16 experimenting myself because of the pain I had um, and finding that I had some benefit with, with using the, the oil called Clary Sage. Uh -huh. um, and it really did help me for a long time, but eventually it wasn't, it wasn't enough. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so that's kind of where that kind of stemmed. And then people I met through that, I was kind of opened up to another world of more complementary therapies. Um, and again, and it's something I've not really talked about. I one thing that really helped me in my twenties was um, Reiki, which I was really? so skeptical about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was when I was feeling pretty desperate towards the. Um, I suppose I was just before I went to med school. Um, I was feeling really desperate because I'd, I'd lost a job. So this is when I I changed one job I'd left in the city, which I'd intended to do, and I was just kind of. Um, 
temping or was I temping at that point anyway I don't know I was, I was working somewhere else um doing, still kind of working financial services but I every month I was struggling with the pain and I just said can I can I come in with a hot water bottle and they were like no it's inappropriate to have a hot water bottle at work and I, I mean I hope things like that have changed yeah, but I was just yeah. in so much pain I was just like okay anyway they let me go but and I well, was because the hot water bottle they because they said I was unreliable because oh. I had I called in sick because they wouldn't let me I, yeah there were a couple yeah. of days each month that I was really incapacitated yeah. with the pain but they weren't that happy to to bend the rules and mm. let me take a water bottle to work and other other things that they mm. didn't really want me to do um it sounds a bit ridiculous doesn't it but mm. it was it was essentially that's kind of what went on yeah. um and I and I remember thinking I've got I've actually had a place at med school I wasn't so upset about losing that particular role because it was just a stopgap. Yeah. But it did highlight to me the issues that people, you know, have generally with these kind of chronic conditions. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking, if I can't this, am I going to manage med school? I have a friend um, who I met through the aromatherapy, she said, well, why don't you try Reiki? And I was like, what is Reiki? Mm -hmm. And I said, at least with, with the oils, I can understand there's some, you know, you can kind of see that there's the chemistry there. You can kind of work out how it might help. And in certain things and she said well just give it a go and I thought well it's not going to hurt me mm. um, well, it's you're not touching <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. I can't, but I just oh. um, and so she gave me a session and I remember I just I felt I just felt slightly energised afterwards and I was like yeah. yeah it's placebo effect well that was quite nice right yeah, yeah. Um, and then she said well go and see my friend Stephen so she said to get, she said because she was moving or something so I went to this guy Stephen and it was incredible and I just do remember I was pain free for probably a good part of two years following really? a few treatments of that oh and my even my, my housemates and my boyfriend at the time they just they both no, they just noticed they said you seem different and yeah. I felt like this energy moving and it sounds ridiculous because yeah. I still can't really explain it yeah. but I definitely had it had an, a profound effect on me then and I think that's what saw me through initially with going to med school yeah and then things started to spiral down but obviously I wasn't having Reiki I probably wasn't looking after my diet yeah. and stuff yeah. kind of going down and mm. I did try and find someone who practice Reiki up in Cambridge um, and for some reason at that point it didn't seem to have the same effect and mm. um, so I kind of abandoned that um, so yeah so I'd say these are the kind of things I'd tried before I'd always been a bit more open I suppose mm. and, and interested in that stuff um, but the the in terms of the lifestyle stuff post-surgery um, I think it came from, I suppose I changed my diet, but this wasn't really for health reasons. This was more because of animal welfare, environmental concerns. I became vegan about yeah, five years ago. Yeah, I was going to ask ago. you about why you went plant-based vegan. Yeah, Yeah. so that was about um, yeah five years ago now. And I'd, for many years, I'd been cutting down on kind of meat consumption. I, I grew up on a farm um, in Derbyshire. And my, my dad's a farm animal nutritionist by kind of trade. And he's, he worked in farming for a bit. And... I was well aware about the importance of animal welfare, even on the small animal farm we had, that there was generally good welfare around, you know, how we mm. kept them and stuff. But I was I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable about the slaughter side of stuff. Mm. And I even knew from what my father, you know, would say to me that that was what he dreaded the day that we took the sheep to slaughter and right. the pigs and things like that. Mm. And I think I remember for ages just thinking it's a, you know, it's a necessary evil, push it to the back of my mind, try and source stuff from farms where they treat their animals well and I did that for a bit but it was getting kind of awkward I go to someone's house and I feel like I can't really quiz where did you get your meat from yeah. but I felt I couldn't say I'm vegetarian because I wasn't and eventually I took the plunge and and I'd done the research and I was like well I know I can do this in a healthy way um and I did veganuary essentially and and then I didn't really kind of like look back 
Um, although initially, I think I focused too much on the junk food aspect of it. And I was like, well, this is vegan. Will I have it? You know, oh, yeah, so this, is, this is a vegan cake. I better eat it. And I, and I remember not feeling so brilliant when I was, that was the kind of thing. And then I just thought, do you know what? If I'm doing this, I need to do it properly. And I really noticed after that, I then became much more nutritionally aware um, in terms of I did a lot more research about nutrients and stuff and menopause. And, and it, so it was at, at that point that, and I started to realize that definitely what I was eating was really having an effect. I mean, I was always peripherally aware of that, yeah, yeah. but I, when I looked at the science a bit more and that got me very interested, definitely noticed as well that my response to treatment depended on how well I was eating and sleeping and everything else. And and then I kind of ended up doing the course that you did as well, I think the RCGP lifestyle medicine course with Rangan and Ian. And so, yeah, so. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So like, I, I, I'm glad. I think veganuary or the whole vegan movement gets a bit of a bad rep because um, you know people do it and they essentially do what you did initially and they just do the junk food stuff. But I think it's a bit of a gateway drug into yeah. eating more nutritionally aware, and I like that way you described it, um, and actually towards a more whole food, plant focused diet. And whether that people still choose to eat meat or not, as long as mm. you're getting more plants in your diet, which across the board is exactly what we need to be doing. And I think that's something to be celebrated. And the other thing I'm really glad you picked up is being open-minded to different uh, medicines, whether you call it energy medicine, whether you call it, you know, Reiki, whatever, because I'm a massive skeptic of that kind of stuff. Um, but even you, with your awareness of the fact that this is likely going to be a placebo effect, the mm. fact that you were doing medicine as well, um, or preparing for, for medical school, despite that, you still found some benefits of it. Definitely. So and I, I think still, yeah. there's a lot that we just don't know. Definitely. <laughs> I know. And it's, it's and I still don't really understand. I mean, I try and do some reading about it, but it's, it's quite hard to know where, where to go for kind of trusted stuff on the internet now. It's so hard to know, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you Google certain things and some quite kind of straight, you know, odd sites can come up and you're like, yeah. well, I'm not sure I necessarily trust what this person's saying. So yeah. I can only really speak from my experience. But yeah. there was uh, the fact it was noticeable to friends and family around me. Uh -huh. And I'd had so many other treatments before and they hadn't, and I thought, well, if it was placebo, it wouldn't really make, do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I, I don't know who yeah. it is, but it also had a big impact on a friend of mine who'd broken her back. Um, was on painkillers and couldn't, and she was struggling to stop taking so many painkillers because of, you know, she was in so much pain. And as she got off her painkillers after seeing Steve, I mean, he was a, he was fantastic. And I think I don't know. Obviously, some of it's to do with the relationship, but with the, with maybe the person yeah. you're seeing. Um, and I think back, I mean, he was he's quite a lot younger now than, than I am now. He was like in his early thirties, but he just seemed to be really full of wisdom and just mm. a very gentle person, a very open person. So I suspect that, and that's part of where I think where the benefits come is with a lot of complementary treatments as well. It's the time making people feel valued and yeah. really listening. Mm. And yeah. I think that's what's so important with all of this stuff is um, everybody's an individual and every you know every every story is different and yeah so. I, th I think there's definitely like a psychotherapy element to that and the, i think the biggest issue with any of these complementary therapies uh, or whatever people choose to call them is um how do you scale that across the population uh how do you get that to the most vulnerable people in a an appropriate time scale um yeah, there's, there's definitely something I want to explore a bit more. Let's go back to the menopause. Uh, so <laughs> so um, I want to talk about this idea of uh, low-level inflammation in the body mm -hmm. uh, post-menopause. Where does that come from? Is that something you come across yourself? And, and do you see this in your clinical practice? 
Yeah, well, we we know that um, the menopausal transition is is a time where there's an increased rate of kind of um, low level inflammatory markers because estrogen itself is inherently anti-inflammatory and it has so many effects on the on the immune system. Gut permeability increases at menopause. There's a paper that came out recent recently about that, and they're saying that that's one of the ways in which in, you know low level inflammation seems to, seems to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it has an effect on the immune system because people can notice their immune function can kind of go down or or conversely autoimmune conditions rise around the menopause and Mm. perimenopause as well Mm. Um, and we think that a lot of the symptoms around perimenopause can be due to you know increases in in inflammation on a general kind of level but I mean it's it's hard isn't it to talk specifically about because inflammation is such a wide-ranging thing and some inflammation is of benefit depending on the context Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and obviously if you need an immune response to say a virus or something like that you want there to be an inflammatory response but I think it there's so much research now isn't there about chronic inflammation and chronic disease whether it's diabetes depression heart disease Mm -hmm. and it certainly seems to play a part in, in in menopause and Interestingly, in premenstrual disorders, in women with PMDD, they tend to have slightly higher inflammatory markers at baseline. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, truly understanding the mechanisms, how it comes about, I think there still needs to be more research. But it it's probably just the lessening of the um, the effects of the, of, you know, if you've got lower levels of estrogen, you've got less un- anti-inflammatory um, hormone in the body. Um, but also like the gut permeability issue, all of that's probably important. Yeah. So, and then the inherent stress that people are going to feel. Yes, um, exactly. From from the from some of the changes that come about, and also I think a lot of people don't appreciate that menopause for some people is a really difficult time because they feel that they're losing their youth, and it shouldn't really be about that. But it is, and I think it's, it says a lot about society and how you value women, and also about how viewing that women are just people to have babies mm. and procreate and mm. that's a whole thing that's important about POI um, and something I've struggled with personally not that I am desperate I was never desperate to have children but I do have moments where I suddenly feel very sad that I ne- would never have my own children um, but I mean I, I definitely believe you can have a very worthwhile and happy fulfilling life without children it's just a different life mm-hmm. um, but it's more the fact that society treat you differently as a woman if you don't have kids and I think that that's really important to change the narrative yeah. um, whether you're someone who doesn't want kids whether you've always wanted kids or whether you can't have kids it's you're not just a, a you know a reproductive machine as a woman yeah and I'm sure this obviously impacts men as well but I think it's particularly important when it comes to women and I see that time and again and women who feel that they've they've lost their reason for being or and just the way people have spoken to me you don't have kids and they'll either be pity or surprise or I don't know and so some of the some of the comments that people will say like if you don't have a, a child you never really know what love is mm. things like that or only a parent would understand and mm. you can feel quite diminished and yeah I, absolutely I think that's what I've struggled with and also some of the isolation that comes with that so are there some differences culturally where uh, maybe it's something that's unique to Western society where it's expected that everyone should have kids and then after menopause, that's something to signify, oh, you're getting old. Whereas perhaps in other cultures, perhaps in ancestral cultures, traditional cultures, uh, have actually celebrated the menopause and something to be to be welcomed and something to mm. appreciate. There's certainly cultural differences, I think, in how menopause is, is treated and how people who are getting older are treated so we mm. know in the west that there's especially in i don't know places like hollywood and stuff or the states yeah it's, it's all about youth isn't it and yeah. everything yeah. like that um 
and, and yet in, in certain other cultures, like you say, your people can be celebrated for being older and having wisdom and, and, um, and just respect, which I think is, is not quite the same over here. I don't think it's exactly the same thing as the whole children issue, mm-hmm. um, because I think in certain cultures where being older and, and more full of wisdom is, is respected, there can be a lot of judgment on women yeah. who can't have children in mm. that culture. Mm. Um, so a lot of a lot of women say for maybe traditional Asian families, and I, I've seen this kind of myself, I suppose, in people I've you know interacted with through the work mm. I've done. Um, I've just said that they they have to keep the fact they can't conceive like a secret because yes, they yeah. they'd be banished or banished. Yeah, it's but, a huge taboo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I think I'm grateful in that that's not the case for me, and I appreciate I'm in a very lucky position. And people whose partners have left them because they're never going to have children, mm. and if they can't have children, then that 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 their partner said they would never you know they can't be a proper proper man if they can't be a father. Mm. Um, so it yeah it kind of reverberates. I think that's across all cultures. Yeah. Um, the issues there um but i'm surprised actually still at the judgment you can face as a woman not having children in a western society absolutely yeah. i mean the the kind of personal questions that people are probably posed to you without you even asking you know it's it's, it's quite um it's pretty rude uh, <laughs> you know to, to 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 ask those questions and and quite pity because you know you it's completely your choice as to whether yeah. you choose to have children or not regardless well i think the thing was in my case it was it wasn't really a choice yeah. and i think it they say well it was a yeah well you chose to have the surgery and i was like but it felt like there was no other option mm. um and i said it's hard because now you can kind of further down the line you're like well would i've done things differently and i don't i don't know but it, it didn't it didn't feel like much of a choice and certainly a lot of younger women who have poi or they have surgical menopause mm-hmm. um due to cancer treatment or endometriosis or pmdd whatever it is mm-hmm. um it, it isn't a choice because mm-hmm. it's a choice between having a life or not having a yeah, life and for yeah. many people yeah. um and that feels taken away from you and then it's a double whammy mm. you're trying to deal with the symptoms of a, a menopause at a much younger age and then the fact that society kind of might treat you differently and yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you uh, sharing your story because I think that is going to be quite empowering for a lot of people who have had similar scenarios to yourself. Um, you mentioned uh, the gut microbiota and gut permeability. Um, so for everyone who's listened to the podcast before, very well aware of the gut uh, being the population of different microbes, larger bacteria, but including viruses, nematodes, fungi, uh, and uh, absolutely inseparable from health. Um, what do we know about the gut microbiota, how we can nurture that microbiota, and what potential effects it can have on the common symptoms that we talked about uh, previously to do with the menopause, so memory, migraine, mm-hmm. um, mood, um, and uh, pain? It's really important, and I think you talked about in your podcast before, and yeah. <laughs> that uh, obviously the gut microbiome and the microbes we have there are just so important for general well-being and health, whether on day-to-day or chronic disease risk. Um, and obviously, what what's in our gut has it affects our hormones and how we metabolize them. And I think I think you've spoken before about things like the gut-brain axis, yeah. and we know that serotonin can be produced in the gut, and so the food we eat can affect our mental health. Mm. And the same goes for our kind of general hormonal health, which obviously is is interlinked with with mental health as well. Um, 
They, there's a paper that shows that people who have more of a plant-based diet tend to suffer fewer menopausal symptoms. But I say that with a caveat that actually it's not necessarily a cure-all. Yeah. But it, there's certainly an association with those following a healthy vegetarian or vegan diet. Their mm. symptoms tend to tend to be less than those who don't. Mm. And then the paper says that it's particularly beneficial if you have berries and leafy greens. Well, mm. that was what they found in, in this particular study. Um, but again, you could be somebody who has small amounts of animal products, but if you're actually, most of your food is whole whole food um that's the, the main benefit is kind of going to be there yeah so we think it's it's for a number of reasons that that's going to affect menopausal symptoms um one of it we we know that the, the more diverse the microbiome um and that gets from using like a fiber rich diet and a you know complex carbohydrate rich mm-hmm. diet um there tends to be more anti, anti-inflammatory properties there mm-hmm. And we just spoke about inflammation. So if you can lower any levels of inflammation there, that's going to have a knock-on effect with the symptoms. Mm. Um, there's also something called the estrobilome. So it's the... Estrobilome. Estrobilome. I haven't heard of this. Wow, <laughs> so, do tell me. <laughs> so this is uh, microbes in the gut that can affect estrogen metabolism. Okay. So they can affect the enterohepatic circulation. So the, whether the, the excretion and, and just general metabolism of, of the estrogens in the gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something called beta-glucuronidase, mm-hmm. um, which is produced by certain microbes yep. in the gut. And um, that, that can activate certain forms of estrogen and things like that. And if there's, if there's a problem with the gut microbes or you don't have enough um, of, the, of the right kind of microbes, uh-huh. then that can affect the activity of, of the beta-glucuronidase. Um, wow, I've never uh, heard of that term before, estrogen. Yeah, so there's a bit more research coming out on that. Uh-huh. So the women um, who have more of a plant-based diet or more of a fiber-rich diet mm-hmm. will tend to have a more diverse microbiome. Uh-huh. Um, and that has kind of like a knock-on effect with that but also um i think you you tend to have more i'm just to think expression of certain genes that that are again to kind of positively affect estrogen metabolism mm. Interestingly, women with um, say a diverse microbiome, they they seem to have lower overall circulating levels of estrogen. Okay. Which some people would think, well, that doesn't really make much sense because surely a lot of the symptoms to do with menopause are to do with low estrogen levels. But it's not just low levels; it's to do with the fluctuating levels. Mm -hmm. And actually, if anything, for most things, it is the fluctuating levels in perimenopause that are the issue. If you've got this diverse microbiome and lower overall circulating levels, you actually tend to have less fluctuation levels and you're excreting some of the um, some of the metabolites of estrogen. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the, the right microbes, inverted commas, you sometimes reabsorb some of those metabolites, which can increase things like acne, mood swings, mm-hmm. fatigue and things like that. Mm. Um, in women who have a fiber-rich diet as well, you tend to have higher levels of sex hormone binding globulin, so mm-hmm. SHBG, yeah. um, and that kind of regulates hormone fluctuations as well. Um, and it tends to be associated with a lower cancer risk, heart disease risk and everything. I, I was going to ask actually, so anything that would um, re- uh, stabilize the levels of estrogen in your body is going to have a knock-on effect on the estrogen-related cancers mm-hmm. as well, so breast and, yeah. uh, um, and, and and others as well. I think the whole the whole topic of estrogen is is, is quite complex and con- controversial because if you believe, believe the papers, you'd think estrogen is this, this like devil's exactly, hormone. Yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah. it's not, it's just that it's like with everything, you need a you need the right balance so estrogen is really important um, especially Mm -hmm. in younger women for you know brain bone heart health mental health Mm -hmm. and everything like that but obviously an excess it it can be problematic too but i think it's more the way our bodies deal with the excess rather Mm. than the overall level of the estrogen Um, so if you've got a slightly higher level of shbg Mm -hmm. and you've got a relatively high level of estrogen it kind of tends to balance itself out Mm -hmm. um 
but it, it is very complex and it, this is why kind of like your gut health and everything else has an impact on on whether you're taking HRT or not taking HRT and, and, and symptoms, mm. whether or not you're on treatment. So, yeah. 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 I, I, I learned um, something quite interesting actually in a previous podcast um, about how with the levels of fiber, yes, probably another mechanism is, is actually uh, increasing the ability of your body to deal with estrogens using these different types of um, microbes, but also um, your digestive tract pooping mm-hmm. is essentially one of the ways you you remove excess estrogens as well from your body, including xenoestrogens as Definitely, well. Yeah. Um, so actually going to the toilet and having different types of fiber can have an impact on that as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the major issues with, um, although I see quite a lot in, in clinic, is a lot of women are quite constipated uh-huh. because yes. the, the, the gut um, has quite a lot of estrogen receptors and that helps with gut motility. Mm-hmm. If um, when, when when the estrogen is kind of downregulated at menopause, obviously the gut tends to slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the slower the transit, the more water is absorbed, the mm-hmm. more likely you are to be kind of constipated. So this is when water again and fiber become massively important as Absolutely, well. Yeah. But yeah, the so the excretion in um, in in, in um, fecal matter is is really important. So again, vegetarians and vegans will have higher levels of um, estrogen metabolites in their um, in their stool than than yeah. somebody who who doesn't eat a fiber rich diet. Yeah. And estrogen dominance, is that something that you've heard clients come to talk to you about and in, and in papers as well? Yes, it's not, I think it's not really an accepted medical yeah. term, but mm. certainly um, people will come and say they think that. But it's normally, it's more that things aren't being regulated in the yeah. right way. Um, I, I like your terminology of it being in balance and or rather regulated rather than, you know, excess of too much thing. Because I think we, we, we like to think of things as humans in very binary terms, i.e. estrogen is bad, so I'm not going to have that much yeah. of it. But really it's about improving your normal homeostatic mechanisms. Exactly. And I think we're just learning about, how the, you know, the part that estrogen kind of plays in that and, and the role of things like metabolic syndrome and stuff. So metabolic mm-hmm. syndrome, cardiovascular risk everything goes up post-menopause and that's for a number of reasons but we know that estrogen is hugely important in dealing with insulin sensitivity and um and everything and if you have the right balance of estrogen in your gut Mm -hmm. it it seems to decrease the risk of 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 kind of dangerous bacteria in the gut so you're less likely to say stuff with c difficile or something if you have a good balance of estrogen but just for the listeners metabolic syndrome is this triad of uh conditions where you have excess blood pressure insulin resistance and central beta obesity and that's something you see correlated with menopause post-menopause or women as well yeah definitely and one of the reasons why hrt uh which we'll get onto in a minute <laughs> uh can be beneficial in terms of preventing um the excess risks associated with uh, with life post-menopause yeah yeah um with the i want to go on to different types of foods <laughs> before i do that um uh soy uh, mm-hmm. So it's a really controversial subject. I'm constantly asked about the soy question whenever I post anything with tempeh or, <laughs> or soy milk or tofu or whatever. Um, soy for menopause, and I know what you're going to say, depends on the person, but soy for menopause, is this something that we should be encouraging or is this something that we need to be fearful of because of the quote-unquote phytoestrogenic effects? Definitely don't need to be fearful of it. <laughs> um, it generally, I encourage everybody to include soy in their diet and a lot of people don't ever include any either because it's just not something naturally part of their diet or they believe the myths that are going around Mm. and the myths that go around around soy are pretty much it's basically as bad as it is with hrt which we'll come on to and Mm. there's so many myths there I mean, soy essentially is a bean, <laughs> but yet there's so much fear that's around it. Um, but it's chock full of these phytoestrogens or plant-based estrogens. 
the the key thing is though that they're not the same as an exogenous estrogen say in the pill or something else mm. or even the estrogen that we produce but they do have an affinity with um, estrogen receptors mm. so you've got two main estrogen receptors estrogen receptor alpha estrogen receptor beta and they have a bit of affinity really for estrogen receptor beta but they, they can act on estrogen receptor alpha so they can have estrogen-like effects and anti-estrogen-like effects as well depends on the tissues and where they're being used in the body um and the estrogen receptor beta is quite important in terms of minimizing kind of cell proliferation and things like that as well so it can have a, a positive effect on kind of reducing breast cancer risk for example mm-hmm. whereas a lot of people will hear phytoestrogens estrogen breast yeah. and they'll automatically assume that 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 soy therefore is very bad for that whereas mm-hmm. the research suggests anything but if anything girls and women who grow up having soya in their diet regularly tend to have a reduced risk of of breast cancer mm. um, and better bone health and so this is i suppose in more traditional kind of asian populations especially kind of in parts of rural china and um, japan and places like that mm. um and obviously over here we don't we have less of that it's not it's not so much part of the culture but um certainly that this the over there that that's what that, that's what the research shows us yeah um research also shows that there's a Interestingly, with estrogen-positive um, breast cancer, there's a reduced risk of recurrence if you include regular soy in your diet because it, it appears to have an anti-estrogenic effect on the breast. Yeah. Um, but conversely, it can have beneficial effects on menopausal symptoms. Um, and it, it there's in terms of bone health, it, the data is kind of inconclusive, but mm-hmm. it's it's either neutral to positive. So it's not going to be as effective at preserving bone health as say estrogen. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it can it can benefit your bone health in that sense. So is that something that you recommend to postmenopausal women in your in clinic then? So switching from dairy to soy milks and trying to include tofu uh, portions of tofu yeah. in your in your weekly diet. I do yeah I do encourage trying to uh, you know trying to include minimally mm. processed soy. And I, one recommendation I tend to make is if people can tolerate soy and they haven't got an allergy, or um, trying to switch from from soy uh, from sorry from dairy to fortified soy milk. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same protein content as cow's. Milk and it's the most nutritionally dense of the of the plant-based milks. Mm. So, but there's also the positive effects it can have not only on menopausal symptoms, but also uh, and on the gut microbes. Mm-hmm. Which I need to come back to you because there's a very specific thing about that with soy. Sure, yeah. Is um, also on heart health. So it improves the um, function of the endothelial linings, the mm-hmm. lining of the blood vessels, mm-hmm. associated with a reduced risk of, of you know blood pressure and stuff. It can lower help lower blood pressure. Um, so there's so many more benefits to it. Yeah, um, and considering women are at risk of heart disease, or most yeah. likely to die from heart disease, yeah. then anything that improves your heart health, like soy-based products, are going to be very beneficial, particularly postmenopause. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, 45% of women in the in the UK or in the Western world die of heart disease, yeah. and yet it doesn't really remain on people's radar that yeah, much yeah <laughs> everyone's I, I, still very fearful of, of cancer and yeah, i'm not downplaying exactly. the cancer but it's the other even women with you've unfortunately had breast cancer are more likely to die of heart disease so i and i don't think a lot of people realize that because i think there's um we're really hot on the pr for for cancers in general female cancers and don't get me wrong it's a horrific condition mm. and i wouldn't wish it on anyone um and it definitely deserves the importance but i think if we're really going to be serious about trying to reduce mortality and morbidity, then heart disease really needs a lot more attention. And I think women typically think this is a disease of men, whereas yeah. actually, you know, w- women do need no, to be aware of it, this. The, um, you know, the incidence skyrockets after menopause because of the, you know, 
estrogen is very important for the health of uh, cardiovascular system mm -hmm. and you kind of can develop cardiovascular instability so that's when you see the blood pressure is kind of going all over the place and stuff mm. postmenopausally and things and the build-up of the you know fatty streaks and in, in the arteries and um, all of you know all of that stuff increases um, there is something called the window of opportunity in terms of hormone replacement therapy, which we can talk about, because some of the data had been a bit conflicting on uh -huh. whether it's beneficial uh -huh. for, for um, heart, heart health after menopause. Mm -hmm. And we now know that it's, it depends on when you start that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, we'll kind of come back to that, but it's, uh, there, there's no, there's very few downsides to, to soy, um, certainly not in the amounts that we're gonna be eating over here. Yeah. We know that women who, who eat it traditionally as part of their diet, they might have two or three servings a day. We're not mm. saying that people necessarily go, need to go to that. But, um, you know, whether that's in soya milk or the tofu, the tempeh, the mise, miso, sorry, or the edamame beans, mm. those kind of things, um, they're, they're probably the best, you know, best ways to kind of get the soy. Um, mm. but we, and when you consume those types of foods, you're consuming more than just like the isoflavones of that are potentially responsible for the improved symptoms. Uh, and the phytoestrogens that you find things like lignans and stuff, you know, you're getting good source of um, protein, you're getting calcium as well. I think that not a lot of people realize that sesame and tofu and beans are very good sources of absorbable calcium yeah. too. Um, not to say that you can't get it from other dairy items. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you're getting this whole orchestra of different ingredients when you, when you yeah. eat whole foods and it's definitely- I think that's the key thing. It's the whole foods and the minimally processed. So not like mm. the soy protein isolate that you're gonna get in a cereal yeah. bar. Yeah. Or yeah. the soy protein powder, which may have its place, but that's not really kind of what we're talking about. It yeah. is like with tempeh, the, the fermented soy that are particularly beneficial for gut health and mm. things like that. But the mm. protein and soy is a complete protein. I know we've kind of moved away from you have to have complete proteins at every meal, but it yeah. has got the complete array of amino acids. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a very good kind of um, non-animal source of, of, mm. of protein and very, very healthy. I mean, unfortunately, some people will obviously you have an allergy or an intolerance and there's other ways that you can kind of get benefits from plant-based proteins but yeah. um and other things that contain phytoestrogens like you know the lentils certain seeds and stuff yeah know, red clover and things that milled flaxseed yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. all of that stuff so um, you wanted to go back to the microbiota and i think i i know what you're probably going to mention is it the equa producing yeah. bacteria in asian women yeah so um Interestingly, the health of your gut microbiome is going to influence how well you or how much benefit you get from soy um, and, and those kind of foods and phytoestrogens. And, and that's because it depends on how, how the, the soy is metabolized in the gut and how it's broken down. And there's one of there's the three main isoflavones, which are kind of the bioactive compounds in the, in the soy phytoestrogens. Um, and one of them is converted to something called equal, which seems to have the most potent effect and, and stuff on the estrogen receptors. And these are the if women are what we call equal producers, so their gut microbes help produce that from from the soy that's been ingested. Um, they're the ones who are going to get the most benefit from eating the soy foods and stuff. Mm -hmm. In the West, unfortunately, there's only about twenty to thirty percent of women who are known to be equal producers right. um, on on the average population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the Asian population, it's closer to sixty seventy percent. Okay. But interestingly, if you have more of a vegetarian or a plant based diet, you're, the, the numbers are closer to to the traditional Asian populations. Ah, interesting. So in the general vegetarian population, it'll be 50 to 60%. So there's something about the gut microbes with the fiber-rich diet, again, or the plant-based diet that, that influences it. Interesting, because I, th I think, again, and I'm probably partial to this, I, I assumed that there was something unique about um, 
women of Asian origin that made them equa producers, but I didn't realize it was malleable by introducing different types of dietary. I think if you, I think some of the studies they've done, so Asian women who would have then maybe have migrated to the West and, ah. and had a more a Western style diet, so a higher fat, probably to fiber ratio, um, mm. then then some of them that their ability to kind of produce equa goes mm. down. Mm. Um, so yeah, so it's quite interesting from that point of view. So we're not saying that everybody necessarily will derive benefit from the soy foods mm -hmm. in terms of the menopausal symptoms. But again, the more plants you include in the diet, the more likelihood that the you will. Likely. Yeah, <laughs> so, you're going to get benefits from um, that. And, and you can still have well. the other benefits, even if you're not an equal producer, it's still mm -hmm. going to have the heart health benefits and still provide you with good protein and fiber and things. So Yeah, I think we've definitely established soy as a good food. <laughs> <laughs> are there any other ingredients that you think are particularly uh, useful? I, I imagine, so from the perspective of, you know, improving your, your gut microbiota, you want to have different types of fibers, of which there are hundreds of different types that you can get from flax and nuts and seeds and, mm -hmm. and different types of beans and lentils. Are there any other sort of foods that spring to mind when it comes to things that you should be introducing I to, mean to deal with the symptoms? Be beans and lentils are particularly um i don't know they're my, they're my, they're my favorite food group <laughs> yeah. i always try and encourage people to include some in their diet and a lot of people don't although sometimes people are eating stuff like hummus without really appreciating that yeah. obviously they're rooted in chickpeas and <laughs> yeah. so it's a good kind of start so there's a study showing that women who have at least four servings of beans or legumes every week um will have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease mm -hmm. um which is important in terms of chronic disease risk obviously um but also again it can help with the excretion of the estrogen metabolism lights and, and everything else there and obviously mm -hmm. the fiber that's inherent there is going to be really beneficial yeah. um in terms of other things we, we know from that paper i mentioned earlier leafy greens and berries are particularly healthy yeah um, i'm really interested in that actually so and i'm not quite sure if we fully understand the mechanisms uh -huh. um again i think the leafy greens because of the ri the richness of things like the nitric oxide mm. and stuff and the effects on the on the cardiovascular system is mm. going to be one helpful from a cardiovascular health point of view long term, but but may also help with kind of some of those vasomotor symptoms, so the hot flushes and things like that. But I'm not entirely sure of the mechanism behind that. Yeah. But that was their finding that 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 they were particularly beneficial leafy greens and uh, and berries, but yeah. which are obviously rich in antioxidants. Yeah, yeah. I think some of it is that these these foods are very. Uh, you know, anti-inflammatory by their very nature. So if you can lower the overall level of inflammation, that's going to help. I think we're definitely learning a lot more about the potential mechanisms by which different foods, particularly from the dark leafy character um, category and sort of berries as well, might have their uh, potential benefits. Um, I know dark green leafy vegetables have been studied for their sort of um, anti-inflammatory uh, factors, their phytonutrients, whether it be sulforaphane or the different types of indoles that you find in brassica, um, as well as their uh, antioxidant uh, capacity as well of different berries. I think I think it's kind of moving on as well about like, you know, the different types of metabolites post-digestion yeah. after your microbiota, because we actually produce, you know, tens of different types of metabolites after you ingest your anthocyanin and it's cleaved and then you get a sugar taken off it and then you know it goes through all these different digestive processes through your liver as well as your your digestive tract so there's a whole bunch of different peaks mm. when you look at the spectrum of different nutrients that are absorbed um post post eating them um but overall there's a huge association with improvements to your um serum levels of of inflammation yeah no it's really fascinating isn't it and i think 
I just I so it's everything I kind of recommend it's all kind of like the plant the plant-based stuff yeah, just and, yeah. and, and, to, and not saying you have to be completely plant-based to derive the benefits mm. it's just and my focus in clinic is always getting people just to increase the number of planting because there's there's no downsides really yeah um, and overall like actually I, I'm of the opinion that if you're going to choose one thing to focus on it won't be macronutrient proportion it wouldn't be calories it would actually be the the amount of fruit and vegetables in your diet because that's hugely correlated with you know improvements in a whole host of different chronic lifestyle related issues so my focus now and everything i do in the doctor's kitchen is just more plants on plates yeah um and you know you can get three to four servings per meal as well and so if you do that you're, you're way on your way to 800 grams per day which is Definitely. seen as like sort of like the gold standard now so yeah i know i think just so many people still don't include enough in their diet and yeah but the average is like three I know, <laughs> I know. So, I mean, I was trying to tell people, you know, eat the alphabet, eat the rainbow. It sounds a bit basic, but yeah. I just think, and also you do need to pay attention to make sure you are getting enough of certain things. Yeah. But, but, but I think it's the diversity is the key for the health of the gut, just mm. generally, and to get all the micronutrients mm. um, that, that are inherent there as well. Um, I mean, nuts and seeds are really important. So healthy plant fats are, are, again, a lot of this is more to do with chronic disease risk, but I think the everything we've just talked about is important because all of these these foods are, are, are you know, rich with their anti-inflammatory properties and stuff as well. Yeah. But um, healthy plant fats are very important for, uh, for kind of brain health and mm. things like that. And I think the more healthy kind of plant fats you include, that, that can have an impact on, on cholesterol and you'll tend to have larger kind of more buoyant LDL particles um, which are less damaging to the mm. lining of the of the, um, of the blood vessels, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, I mean, obviously you're aware and you spoke about before, but you know, not all cholesterol is the same. Yeah, and, and yeah. yeah. I think cholesterol is like a very misused term itself. Yeah. Like cholesterol is cholesterol, and then you have different transporters that have, in my opinion, have been inappropriately labelled good and bad. In reality, they can have both good and bad effects. Whether you're talking about LDL or HDL. It's a, a topic that I've kind of veered away from because it's just so nuanced. And yeah. if I'm honest with myself, like the biochemistry of it evades me to the level that I'd want to talk about like openly on a, on a podcast. Um, but it's definitely something that's on the radar. No, but- I know. Well, I feel kind of similar. And I think this, I don't really have full understanding of it, but I mm. suppose I know from the research I've done and things like that, that it's, that, well, I, I've, I've known for a while, it's not black and white. Mm. Um, not all cholesterol is bad. And actually a lot of the hormones are derived with the, the cholesterol pathway. Oh, yeah, really. so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think in terms of like you're saying about macronutrients and mm. stuff earlier as well, I think the, the, the main thing is you don't want to, the low carb diets generally are not anything I would recommend um, for a for menopausal women or women who are struggling mm. you def- because obviously that inherently means often they're reducing their fiber intake mm. not not always but often it means that yeah. they, I mean you, you can kind of do low carb vegan but it's not something I generally would kind of recommend and so I think it's it's more about the right kinds of carbs yeah. and right kinds of fats it's not mm. low carb or, or high fat it's kind of yeah. right right carbs and right fat yeah <laughs> exactly I mean? yeah so. and I, ju- I just think like um rather than limiting yourself to thinking about food in a in a way that you know makes you obsess about the proportions of fiber and, and carbohydrates it's like okay well just if you eat generally these different types of foods in the variety and you're most likely going to be getting the fi- right, right amount of fiber Definitely. that's going to derive benefits yeah. um just sorry, i was going to say about yeah, bone health because yeah. that's one thing that a lot of women are very worried about because as well as heart disease going up we know that osteoporosis rates hugely go up after menopause and can be a massive cause of you know debilitation and stuff and, and frailty in older age mm. um 
obviously weight bearing exercise is really important not smoking not drinking alcohol to excess not having too much many fizzy drinks caffeine all of that kind of stuff um but a lot of people i see women who one woman came in and said she was drinking six pints of milk a day which I thought would make most people feel sick. pints of milk. Because she, she, was, she was so worried about her bones because there was oh. a family history of osteoporosis. Oh, what cool and I think that there's a lot of education that needs to, and that, that obviously dairy is a source of calcium and it's always been a convenient source of calcium, but it's not the only source. Mm. And, there's, and that was the paper, I don't know if you saw the New England Journal of Medicine recently, they published a paper on milk and on health. Milk and, health. Yeah, yeah. and they're saying, actually, we need to reduce the amount of dairy <laughs> we're having and actually recommended servings are zero to two a day. Yeah. And if you do have it, the focus should be more on fat, full fat rather than the lower, lower yeah. fat, which yeah. is kind of contrary to the, you know, everything yeah. that's been said before. Yeah. And I think because of my own personal interest and stuff I've done, I've been aware of that. And mm. I knew that Canada had removed milk from their kind of healthy food place a mm. while ago, because it's not a necessary food stuff, certainly not for adults. Um, and that we need to remember that calcium can be got from other sources. Yeah. Um, an excess consumption of dairy is associated with harm. Mm. Um, various increased risks in terms of certain inflammatory disorders, but also bizarrely in terms of fracture risk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, a lot I, of people just aren't aware of that. Yeah, um, yeah. And I feel like, you know, I think we're, again, we think very binary when it comes to things like, where do you get your calcium from? Oh, I get your calcium from milk because that's been sort of drummed into yeah. our heads from childhood. Oh, it has, yeah. We need to think about variety. And, and I think even with the whole saturated fat argument, there's a few papers that come out in the last five years about the different types of saturated fat, depending on the uh, carbon chain length and how that might have differing effects. Um, so there's a lot more to the story, I think, rather than just labeling, okay, well, this is good and that's bad. I'm just going to focus on one thing. Yeah. Um, so you want to try and get a variety. But I think because our possible. bones don't just need calcium. They need obviously vitamin D. Vitamin that's D. the other thing, which I always recommend supplementing with, yeah. to be, especially in yeah. the winter months here. Um, and also it has effects on the estrogen receptor and yeah. metabolism. But um, but also things like beta carotene and uh -huh. in vegetables is so important. And um, adequate protein, mm. magnesium, boron. Yeah. Um, if your focus on calcium is and bone health is just dairy, you're going to be missing out on everything else. So, yeah. Yeah. Think about leafy greens, um, you know, say like tahini, sesame yeah, seeds, things yeah. like that, fortified soya products. They're all and beans there's even and a legumes. few other metabolites as well that we need to be aware of. So there's polyphenols that are produced by your gut, um, uh, as well, by your gut microbes, and they're digested. And then you also have vitamin K2 as well, mm -hmm. metaquinone, which is again a product of bacterial fermentation, which you can, you know, get mm. by eating all the different things that we've been talking about fiber and dark green leafy vegetables. So it's a really important thing to think about rather than just thinking, okay, I'm going to have six pints of milk because yeah. that's going to help my calcium. She didn't want to have that. them. I felt, I you know, know, the thing yeah. is she felt that she Poor was, thing. and I think it's the marketing has been so good around yeah. milk and bones. It's <laughs> yeah. just, um, but I think message hopefully slowly getting out there that there's other ways to get your calcium. And yeah. a lot of people are slightly lactose intolerant. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and including quite a lot of European Caucasians who assume that they're not. I often find if they reduce that, then a lot of other symptoms tend to improve as well. Yeah. There's but, a lot um, of like, you know, symptoms associated with like meta-inflammation, this sort of like low-grade inflammation that just kind of hangs around. A lot of people become acclimatized to. Um, and on the subject of bone health, before I forget, we were talking a bit uh, in the break about um, your exercise habits and mm -hmm. how exercise is very important for bone health, particularly weight-bearing exercises. But also something I think I want to talk about a little bit later as well is how initially when you had drastic symptoms and you couldn't go out and you felt, you know, debilitated with 
fatigue and muscle pain, you felt really guilty at the fact that you couldn't exercise. And I think it's really important to note that if you are in the throes of uh, the, the issues around the menopause, it's okay not to exercise if you can't at that point mm-hmm. in time. It's just something to you know put on the radar and yeah. perhaps do another time when you feel better. I think the number one thing I end up saying probably to most women in clinic is you kind of have to be kind to yourself because so many people come in and they're feeling guilty either because they have either made massive lifestyle changes and they're still struggling and they think well they're obviously doing something wrong Mm. or those who are so debilitated they can't even begin to think about changing their lifestyle because Mm. they just feel so dreadful and I think so much good comes when you kind of just relax a little bit and just be a bit kind to yourself so in terms of the exercise it it is really important but but also you can if if you i've seen women who over exercise too Mm. and so they're hitting the gym really hard every (laughs) night or going to boot camp or high intensity interval training and they're absolutely exhausted Mm. and they're doing that and they're skipping on sleep which isn't going to be beneficial Mm. so Mm. sometimes i'll say to people well just dial that back a little bit or maybe do a, um, a kind of a, a relaxing yoga session. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of yoga with Adrienne. Yeah. Recommend yeah, her to yeah, everyone. Yeah. I um, recommend that a lot as well in clinic. I'm constantly yeah. like writing prescriptions. For- yeah, so do I. Yoga, <laughs> yoga, go on with yoga with Adrienne. Yeah, yeah. And I say to people, even if sometimes, because she does um, obviously even just like five minute things yeah. and also she does like yoga, seated yoga. So yeah. I said, look, or yoga in bed, you know, if you were really not able to do that, just even doing some of these relaxation exercises mm. are going to help and, Mm. Yeah, there's probably some extra benefits beyond the physical activity of yeah. yoga. I mean, I've spoken about yoga twice actually on the podcast already um, with Eddie Stern and with uh, Dr. Claire as well, who's a yoga practitioner and a GP. And um, there are so many benefits associated with yoga to things like inflammation, to mental health, that I yeah. can imagine, you know, it's definitely going to have some benefits on menopause. Have you come across anything specifically with yoga and menopause? Definitely. I went to, there was a yoga healthcare professional conference last oh, year, really? which I oh, went wow. to, which mm. was really interesting. It was a mixture of doctors and yoga practitioners. Mm. And that was fascinating. And they, project, they presented data from a big survey they'd done. And around 65 to 70% of women in that survey had, had derived hormonal health benefits so whether it was pms or whether um, or whether it was menopause and we don't know if that's because of how it affects stress pathways we don't really know but i suspect it's numerous things that is going to have that effect maybe it's that taking time for yourself having a breather it's going to lower those kind of inflammatory levels Mm. and just the stress response and um, that obviously interlinks with how your body's coping with the hormonal change so I remember one anecdote when I was quite, um, well, I wasn't that junior, it was probably a few years ago uh, when I was really getting into the lifestyle stuff. And I suggested to um, a woman who was going through menopausal symptoms that she should really focus on sleep. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of snapped back. She's like, how on earth do you think I can sleep when I'm going through the menopause? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. And I think that's probably the worst thing I could have said in that moment because, you know, that's one of the main issues that she had. Yeah. like, you focus on sleep, loads of things get better, improves your inflammatory pathways, reduces stress, all this kind of stuff. Uh, so is, how do you approach that topic? Um, the sleep topic. sleep, yeah. And and I, I think it's very, you know, it's very well known now through the work of like, you know, Matthew Walker and a whole bunch of other sleep experts mm. that how critical it is to overall health and morbidity, reducing the, the risk of chronic um, uh, disease. Um, but with s- sleep and menopause, it's something that's quite uh, hard to just prescribe and ex- expect yeah. people to. And it is take. one of the biggest, it's, it's one, an, another top reason that I see people in clinic. And yeah. I know myself, if my estrogen's low or I'm out of balance, then my sleep suffers. 
Um, and that can be for a number of reasons. If people are suffering with night sweats and, and hot flushes, that's one main reason. If you, a lot of women will wake up absolutely drenched mm. in sweat um, and have, sometimes physically have to change their bed sheets and their clothes. Mm. Um, obviously, that's not going to make for a good night's sleep. Sometimes it's the anxiety and um, the changes in the brain that's affecting them. People can't switch their brains off. Um, we also think there's another way in which menopause kind of affects sleep, but we're not quite sure of the mechanism. There's something in the melatonin pathway and like okay. the um, and pineal glands, there seems to be a thing. I think the number one thing again is to tell people not to panic but that is and but it's difficult because you see all this stuff everywhere saying how important sleep yeah. is for you yeah. if you then can't sleep you then get stressed about the fact you can't sleep it's a massive vicious cycle so I try not to kind of say you know it's so important because mm. I don't want to add to that distress exactly. yeah yeah I just say it is important but obviously it, and you have to look at your overall lifestyle mm. again HRT can make a massive difference, mm -hmm. um, but obviously lifestyle is hugely important too. So regular bedtimes, and I think that's what's hard for quite a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, trying to go to bed, get up at the same time each day, getting out in the daylight, obviously that's gonna be affecting the pineal gland, yep. melatonin production later in the day. Mm -hmm. No caffeine after midday, mm -hmm. trying to minimize drinking alcohol because mm -hmm. that obviously disrupts your sleep cycle. Um, not looking at screens close to bedtime um i mean i've got all of rungan's books yeah, the yeah, blue light blocking yeah. glasses and yeah, things like that yeah. i kind of it's all of that kind of stuff that i would talk about but a lot of women are very aware of that mm. and sometimes hrt is is going to be the thing that actually tips them into being able to sleep well yeah. again mm. but sometimes it is more of the stress thing and it's trying to work out what what what's feeding what really and generally yeah. it's a combination of things so mm. i think it's just making them aware that it is important and it will have an impact um, and sometimes we need to help people kind of get back into having a regular sleep even if it's just a short-term pharmaceutical help yeah. with that yeah. and try not to do that yeah. but um um sometimes if once people have had a few nights sleep they just start to feel exactly <laughs> sometimes better. i think it's almost like you can use certain pharmaceuticals as a crutch uh, as a stepping stone yeah. to get you know people across the line and then they can take care of themselves or they can put in you know instigate good sleeping habits improve their anxiety levels around sleep um We've skirted around the subject of HRT. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should probably talk about it. So there is, a, again, a, a confusion amongst the different terms uh, around HRT. Uh, yeah, so uh, body identical, bioidentical, and synthetic HRT. Okay, so <laughs> HRT is obviously um, hormone replacement therapy. And there are a lot of myths about <laughs> about mm. this. Um, I suppose maybe I should just start by saying that because so many people are still so fearful of HRT, mm. and I'm not somebody who says everybody should be on HRT or we, you know, it, it's, it's it's the holy grail because I don't believe that. But I think people need to have the accurate information regarding it, and it can be hugely helpful and life changing. Yeah. And it's very important in women who have an early menopause. So anybody who enters their menopause below the age of forty five, and this is obviously aside from those women who've had a hormone dependent cancer which will require to kind of different management it's so important to protect their long-term health mm -hmm. um and there any risks you hear associated with hrt don't apply to that group of women mm -hmm. um um which kind of we can kind of come on to later but it's um it, it's it, the benefits will hugely outweigh the risks in terms of quality of life and chronic disease risk yeah, yeah. but there's so much scaremongering out there and it's yeah. based on a lot of old data old papers and it doesn't differentiate between the types of hrt which yeah. is the crucial thing yeah so obviously e e hrt is um generally estrogen and progesterone mm -hmm. 
it's the estrogen component that normally helps moderate the and calm down the, the symptoms we've kind of discussed, the, the hot flushes, the mood changes. It's actually in the NICE guidelines on menopause. It's the number one recommendation that menopause-related mood changes should be treated with HRT. Mm-hmm. Um, don't go down the antidepressant route. I mean, yeah. sometimes that's necessary, mm-hmm. but the first port of call would always be HRT because mm-hmm. that's the root cause of that kind of mental health disturbance there. Mm-hmm. Um so it's the estrogen, it helps smooth out the kind of the, uh, the ups and downs. So it helps smooth out the fluctuations. It reduces that big feedback cycle, um, but it also tops up the level. So, you know, estrogen replacement is going to certainly help those symptoms like the, the vaginal dryness or any urinary symptoms, pain mm. with intercourse, that kind of stuff as well. Um, so, yeah, so we've got the, the, the estrogen component. The progesterone is really important for maintaining the health of the lining of the womb. Mm-hmm. Um, if we just give women estrogen, you, you risk building up the lining of the womb, which mm-hmm. can lead to bleeding issues. And in worst case scenario, um, you know, precancerous or cancerous changes. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally it's very safe. And for most women who start at below the age of men, um, 60 mm-hmm. and within 10 years of menopause, that's the window of opportunity we were mm-hmm. kind of talking about. Yeah. The, the benefits outweigh the risks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in terms of chronic disease risk as well. Yeah. So we think that you see heart, heart health benefits if it started within that time period. It becomes a little bit, we're unsure, post 60. It, yeah. and it, the, but the key thing is about starting, it's not continuing, it's starting that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there are some women who I've started on HRT in their late 60s, 70s, 80s. Oh, really? Who are still struggling so severely with menopausal symptoms at that age. They have no quality of life. And actually, at that point for them, the benefits still outweigh the risks because they're then sleeping again and and their mood is better and things like that. And I think this goes to the sort of concept of personalized medicine as Mm. well. You know, you're treating the individual in front of you and you have, yes, the data and huge studies to guide you and give you like some, some, uh, like um, uh, a framework. But at the end of the day, if this is going to be helping with anxiety, mood symptoms, sleep, et cetera, that we know are related to a whole bunch of other outcomes, then it's really important to actually have that conversation. Definitely. So, yeah, so in terms of the studies, there was a study um, kind of in the early 2000s in the Women's Health Initiative, Mm -hmm. um, which is is basically what kind of brought HRT into disrepute. And it was looking at thousands of women, mainly US-based, and they were looking at um, you, you know the effects of HRT mm. on kind of long, a long-term health, but they actually the women they were studying were generally far beyond post-menopause or early menopausal age. They were in their sixties. Um, yeah. I think the average age was like sixty-three or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them have, were more than ten years post-menopause. A lot of them had cardiovascular risk factors. A lot of them were overweight. They it wasn't a typical population that you would actually normally consider starting HRT in. Mm. Um, and they were also using an old fashioned form of, of HRT. Mm. Um, so I think the majority of them were, were kind of on the conjugated equine estrogens, which is derived from pregnant mare's urine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an oral form of estrogen, a synthetic form there. Um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that I wouldn't recommend them, but and mm. it's not the first port of call now. So one, it's an old fashioned estrogen we don't tend to use over here. Two, it's or, it was oral. And two, and the third thing is there was much older women generally than the average population starting yeah. on it, but they extrapolated those results, which showed an increased risk of heart disease and breast cancer onto a younger population. Mm-hmm. We now know from kind of further studies that that the benefits tend to outweigh the risk in the younger women. And it depends on the type of HRT and everything else, which is, yeah. comes back to what you asked me about. Yeah, and yeah. I to pick <laughs> but the, um, so most, most estrogen that we give in this country is estradiol. Uh-huh. Um, and that, that's, um, 
that's the same estrogen that we kind of produce in in in, you know, in our bodies naturally mm-hmm. as opposed to the conjugated equine estrogen in the study we were just talking about um and um so so most of the, even a lot of the estrogen that's in the, the tablets that you might get at the gp or patches also it's it's um beta 17 estradiol and that's the, that's the, the important one and it's the progesterones that are kind of generally important in terms of heart um kind of blood clot risk and, and breast cancer risk it's the combination of the two mm-hmm. um so most of the progesterones and most preparations we give in this country are synthetic mm-hmm. um, um and there's a number of different kinds of them it's probably a bit too much detail to kind yeah. of go into there's here progester- uh, progestin and then there's yeah so progesterones and then there's natural progesterone which yes. is called yeah. U- the one i tend to use is called utrogestan which is mm-hmm. available on the nhs mm-hmm. a combination of the natural progesterone the utrogestan with the um with estradiol um, if it's given through the skin, so a gel or a patch or something like mm. that, um, that's the that's the lowest risk in terms of HRT. Mm. So estrogen um, that's given through the skin, there's no increased blood clot risk. So a bit like with the pill, there's a small increased risk of blood clots if you take an oral estrogen because mm. of the way it's metabolized through the liver. And it's the same with with, with oral HRT. Mm. But if estrogen through the skin, that you, you avoid that. And so there's no increased risk in, in terms of your clotting factors yeah. and things like that. Um, that combination with the natural progesterone, um, that there, there's no increased risk of breast cancer risk at five years, according to the most recent data. Mm-hmm. It may start to increase slightly after that, but it's certainly nothing like the, the like figures that are often figures, reported yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So um, that seems to be the best combination and it is available on the NHS, but it's not always recommended first line probably just to do with costs and things like that. Do you so. think if you were czar of uh, <laughs> this this particular element of um, prescribing on, on NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence uh, or NHS guidelines, um, would you prefer everyone to be on a body identical? Um, I Ideally, although having said that, some people I do end up using the oral ones because it yeah. again very much depends on the women and, and yeah. not everybody absorbs well through the skin and I'm mm. one of those women <laughs> yeah so um you don't you don't absorb necessarily through the skin yeah. and, and then if you there's no point giving a medication if you're not deriving any benefit from it and yeah. if you're somebody who hasn't got any other cardiovascular risk factors mm. you don't have migraine if you're not obese there's no harm in you taking the the, 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 the you know an oral tablet i don't want to scare people away yeah. from that they've got their place um so you have again it's looking in context of that person's history their family history mm. um and, and their particular symptoms mm. So that that all plays a part, and so you mentioned the body identical. So the transdermal estrogens and, and the estrogens that are in most of the tablets we give, are, they are what we call body identical, so identical to the hormones we produce, um, and the utrogestan, the natural progesterone, is as well. Mm-hmm. Bioidenticals is a bit of a marketing term. Yeah, yeah. Body identical is actually bioidentical, but it's trying to differentiate unregulated bioidenticals with regulated. regulated. Uh-huh. So there are places called compound compounding pharmacies mm-hmm. where they make um, unregulated bioidentical HRT mm-hmm. and they sometimes will say that they're safer than traditional HRT or HRT you can get from the doctors mm-hmm. whereas there's there's no evidence for that and if anything there's concerns about that they don't provide adequate progesterone mm-hmm. um, to protect the lining of the womb. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying everybody who but does this is 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 a charlatan or, yeah. or doesn't prescribe appropriately but there isn't enough regulation i think in that sector mm. so there will be people prescribing appropriately mm. um but the, the risks are pretty much the same it's still estrogen it's still progesterone and we can get regulated body identical on the nhs um it's just the unregulated you have to be very cautious where you're going who's prescribing yeah. um 
uh, and all of that. So, and sometimes they can be well intentioned. Exactly. As well. and I, and I, you know, but I, I think to your point, you know, the fact that it is unregulated and there is no evidence base behind it is a little bit concerning. Um, because you just you don't really know what you're getting because people order stuff online so i've seen women who have ordered progesterone cream online and they think it's and then they're taking estrogen and um that they're having bleeding problems and you have to refer people for scans and and then they sometimes might have you know changes to the lining of their womb and they might have to have a biopsy and i just want to avoid people going down that route um so it, it, the terminology is confusing. There's a helpful sheet on the British Menopause Society website about the difference, although it is quite, it's written for medical professionals. Oh, okay, yeah. But it does talk about it and the concerns around unregulated bioidenticals. Okay. Um, and they will, of course, have regulation probably within their own little practice, but mm. it's, it's not like they're regulated by the MHRA like all of our other medications exactly, are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I try and just steer people towards the regulated bioidentical otherwise known as body identical yeah yeah, so. yeah. i'm glad we, we we covered that because i think bioidentical and body identical are thrown around quite a bit and body identical from what i know is quite a relatively new term as mm. well so it's only one that i come across in the last couple of years um and i get asked a lot about that as well about wh- whether one is safer than the other so that's really cleared up things and i love the point about how you know just because something is synthetic doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be worse for you and, and actually there's a place for all different types of medicines in the medicine cabinet depending on the person and their ability to absorb as well um I've just realised I didn't talk about the vaginal estrogens oh, as yeah, well, yeah, which yeah. is the other thing. So not every woman will need to take um, HRT. Obviously, uh-huh. there's, I, I don't unless you have had an early menopause, it's, it's very much then based on symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so people don't need to panic if they've not had HRT. It's it, but I just think everybody should be aware of those options and mm. things like that. Um, but some women will just will, might just need some local vaginal estrogen or something to help with symptoms. So because some people, for them, they are the worst symptoms. Exactly. I've met people who have been suicidal because their symptoms have been so severe. Mm. Um, like their episiotomy scars have split open when they're sitting down. Yeah. They they can't wear underwear. People have like left their job because of vaginal symptoms. And wow. I don't think anyone talks about that. Yeah. It can be a very severe burning type pain. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think it, that can really destroy life it can wreck relationships yeah. so obviously a woman who's in that situation is not going to want to have sex or any intimacy because mm. of the pain but sometimes people are still so embarrassed to talk about it they don't even talk to their partners mm. and people then are feeling rejected so it can have that knock-on effect and then can disrupt relationships and things as well well to your point at the start of this pod you know people tend to associate the menopause with the typical vasomotor symptoms flushing migraines uh, pain um, and we forget about the seemingly trivial symptoms, but they can just be as yeah. as important. To your point about the episiotomy scar and the dryness, you know, it definitely wrecks relationships. I've I've certainly had patients who come in and said, "This is literally the worst thing ever. Yeah. My my marriage is in disarray. You know, I can't have sex anymore. I don't really feel like it." And there's a whole bunch of other yeah. issues and that can compound the issues that are already associated with menopause, like exactly. Stress and anxiety. I think there's still a taboo. I mean, there's a, yeah. a fantastic book out there called "Me and My Menopausal Vagina" Me by and my... menopausal. Vagina. Vagina oh, right, okay. by Jane Lewis. Okay. Who, okay, so I can say anything, but it's excellent. So she's a lady who wrote, um, was it just called My Menopausal Vagina? Sorry, Jane, I've forgotten the exact name. <laughs> anyway, I will. I'll put it on the show notes. Yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. Um, she talks about her journey because she's somebody who, who struggled hugely with this and she's on a mission now to make sure other people don't don't go down okay, that. And yeah. she did, is she a comedian by any chance? No, no, she's oh, not. Okay, no, I'm thinking but, of someone else that, that is a comedian and, and a lot of content is around the menopause. Yeah. She um, was so desperate that other people didn't see suffer in the way she had she spoke out even though obviously it's something oh, wow. that a lot of people wouldn't choose to speak out about yeah, yeah. and her book 
book is fantastic. I recommend it to everybody. Um, and she was very scared away from HRT again because of the myths that she'd heard yeah. and thought it was dangerous and it was definitely going to give her breast cancer because yeah. I know we haven't yeah. even talked about that. But mm. she was so scared about that um, and that was part of the answer for her. Um, but not every woman will need, like I say, to be on systemic HRT, but mm. sometimes just some local estrogen cream or pessary. There's an estrogen ring. Mm -hmm. There's also some new pessaries which have got DHEA, which mm -hmm. is the precursors to estrogen and testosterone. Mm -hmm. They can be kind of life-changing for people. Yeah. Um, and you, they can be taken either with or without having systemic HRT. Yeah. And there's no increased risk there. Any of the other risks you hear associated with HRT don't apply yeah. um, because it's not then any systemic absorption is minimal. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm going to be talking about the subject with another um, uh, doctor, Dr. Lisa Moscone. Mm -hmm. She's written a new book, which is all about um, the ex. It was called the XX Brain, and it's oh, basically yeah, no, about. Oh yeah, I'm listening forward to listening. Yeah, to reading yeah, about it her, should be yeah. really interesting. So I don't know if you've come across any sort of associations with uh, dementia, postmenopausal, what the mechanism behind that might be, and whether HRT has an impa impact on that as well. There's a paper that was published in Post Reproductive Health, which is the British Menopause Society Journal, in the, in the last edition, which was just about that um so i was associate editor for the last one we did like um, a themed issue on, on menopause and, and, and the brain um and this should have been included in that for various reasons ended up being put in the later one okay. but it's all about that research because it's been conflicting on on whether estrogen is beneficial or detrimental yes yeah um and what it seems to be is about your genetic risk and the, and, and certain types of dementia or, or risk will, will respond to hrt in a beneficial way uh -huh. We think it's very unlikely that HRT has any negative impact okay. on that, uh, but it's not going to be the answer for everybody. For everyone, yeah. But we yeah. know that estrogen is neuroprotective. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of women will talk about their brain fog and memory mm. issues, and that's a, that's something that I, I certainly have. And I think one of the most frustrating symptoms for me, because it's never really gone away, it's mm. helped with HRT. Mm. Um, I should say that I also do take testosterone, which is particularly important in, in younger women again, because mm. it helps with cognition and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't have the right balance of hormones, it can affect your ability to think clearly, memorize. And, um, and there are certainly does seem to be an association with increased dementia risk, which is one of those fun things about early menopause. Women who've had their ovaries removed below the 45 and don't have replacement HRT have a much higher risk of dementia. Right. But it's again, it's one of those complex relationships as everything with estrogen is. And it's not as black and white as give estrogen and everything's exactly, fine. Exactly, everything's clearer. <laughs> so, and you think clearer and you, your skin will glow, etc. Um, okay, we, we've talked about so many different things. This is, it's, honestly, I, I think this is fascinating for me as well because I, I definitely need to look into the subject a lot more. Um, supplements, uh, probiotics, prebiotics, omega-3, which I know that you want to talk about mm -hmm. uh, as well. Um, are there any things that you um, uh, tend to recommend um, or suggest to patients that should be thinking about i mean i'm not a fan of supplementing for supplement's sake mm. um, but i think i mentioned that vitamin d was really important yeah. but i think that's just a population-wide thing but mm. it's particularly important in terms of estrogen metabolism and bone health so mm. it's particularly pertinent there yeah and often women who've got a history of severe premenstrual disorder and they tend to be the ones who might struggle more around menopause as well will um, um have a higher requirement of vitamin d mm -hmm. um Iodine is something that I think is very important. Just mm -hmm. obviously, we know for for the thyroid health, yeah. which is connected again with with you know all the other hormonal pathways, um, but also for bone health. Mm -hmm. um, and unlike most countries here, we don't supplement. We don't kind of iodize our salts like we do in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So there's some iodine found in some dairy products, but that's part of the cleaning the process in the vats, and it's yeah. mm -hmm. and it seems to be higher in 
probably the the lower welfare cow like the factory farmer oh, really? rather than the organic because oh, it's right. to do with the cleaning side gotcha. of stuff uh-huh. and what they use yeah and it's i don't think it's a reliable source for getting your iodine mm. um and we have to think about everything else we've just said about the dairy mm-hmm. it's obviously found in some seafood sources so certain fish and um like seaweeds but mm-hmm. again you, it's it can be hard to know if you're getting the right amount and you don't want to have too much yeah so a supplement containing 150 micrograms of iodine is probably recommended mm-hmm. um and I wonder if that's iodine deficiency is probably behind the big kind of number of people we see with hypothyroidism. So. Uh, you know, it's so funny. So one of the um, the lecturers on my nutritional master's course, her specialist interest is iodine. And the way in which we test for iodine deficiencies is really archaic. Like okay. it's like a 24 hour collection and it's you can't just go and do an iodine test. You, you, it's, it's impossible. We don't actually have the way of doing it. So, um, you know, the way the sources in which we, we get iodine, the ones that you just um, uh, mentioned, dairy um, is from the agricultural uh, practices and that's how we get iodine. You've got it from sea, so, uh, sea vegetable sources, but they can be super high, super mm. low, um, or mainly high. Um, and then you've got it from seafood as well. Mm. So I think, yeah, if, if there is a, uh, an issue it's probably uh, under iodine intake and probably supplementing with iodine well, is I do I do way. worry that sometimes people go especially people who are, you know get very health conscious sometimes go and get the kelp supplements which yeah, can be far too high in that's iodine that's way too high yeah and so I try and get, advise people to get away from that and to be honest the supplement I tend to recommend is the vegan society supplement mm. because it has vitamin D, it has um, B12, mm-hmm. which everybody needs to supplement whatever their diet if they're over the age of 50. Mm-hmm. And that's the general recommendation. Mm-hmm. And if you're on a plant-based diet, obviously very important. Um, um, and it also contains iodine. Mm. And also contains B6, which can actually help with kind of um, the you know hormones as well. And, yeah, I was um, going to ask about B6 because I think that was one of the recommendations in the Nice Guidelines yeah, as well. Yeah, so that, we know that there, there's some evidence that can help with premenstrual disorders, mm. sometimes at higher levels than would be in a standard supplement. And again, that's one of those things that I would... I would speak to patients about on an individual basis. So that wouldn't be like a blanket supplement, mm. but it, there's a small amount in the in the veg one, which is the vegan society one, which, and I think it's just cheap and cheerful and it's designed by a dietitian. So I'm quite happy to re- recommend it because yeah. it's just, it, it doesn't over supplement, it doesn't contain everything, but it's got those basics. And yeah. we know that B12 is important for heart health and brain health. And mm. we don't tend to absorb it so well from food the older we get. So. Mm. Yeah, and then omega threes. The more research that comes out saying that actually supplements aren't that helpful. Yeah, I know, right? It's (laughs) so weird. I mean, the flip flops back and forth. I mean, I personally take an omega three supplement. I do too. Uh, I don't. I don't have enough oily fish in my weekly diet. Um, I think, on balance, from what I've read, it's probably it's not going to do harm, and it's potentially going to be beneficial. I take a. I actually take a vegan version, so it's from an algae source. Um, and yeah, I know I have tons of like different nuts and seeds and walnuts for the ALA short chain omega yep. three benefits. So, so that's that's, ten, my, that's, that's for me, yeah. not menopause or anything. But, but then, no, but that's ten, what I tend to recommend. Like you know, so you say well, six walnut halves, or you know, having some um, fresh ground flaxseed or flaxseed mm. oil, that kind mm-hmm. of other nuts and seeds. Um, I think the problem with because again, a lot of people will eat fish thinking that that's going to be helpful but again i think the way things are depending on where you get your fish from there's Mm. no guarantee you're getting a good omega-3 source Mm. so they did a study recently looking at omega-3 levels in supermarket salmon and some of them were absolutely negligible (laughs) because they're not feeding them their natural diet um well, it's so, how you where you source your salmon from yeah where it's farmed what kind um of- and and i 
and also there's other issues obviously there's whole sustainability issues yeah. about this kind of stuff as well and I, so I don't necessarily recommend you people were going to eat fish for that because I think mm. there's not even a good evidence that you're going to be getting enough from that and there's mm. the other concerns mm. um, but with um, yeah so I, I mean I take an algae based omega-3 supplement because that's where the fish derive there's their omega-3 from mm -hmm. and so you're kind of going direct to source but you just need to make sure it's good one with a good EPA DHA yeah, ratio EPA, DHA, so yeah. I'm not um, sure of any brands but I'm sure there's there's loads on the internet but you, yeah you're going to be looking at ones that have adequate yeah. or but I think like you amounts. it's kind of erring on the side of caution um, yeah. and we you know omega-3s we know have do seem to have their benefits but yeah. it just the the evidence of, in terms of supplements is, is difficult it's it? really difficult yeah and i think a lot of them come from associations as well uh, rather than actually something that demonstrates a mechanism as to why it might be worse for prostate cancer is the latest yeah. thing i heard about um but yeah pre and post uh probiotics do you do you think there's a role for them or do you think from the diet and from things like sauerkraut kimchi um, well, the prebiotics, obviously, if you're eating a fiber-rich diet and you're feeding the bacteria the healthy foods, that's going to be mm. benefit. And I think that's the most important thing. But again, there's there's some more research coming out about the importance of probiotics in certain things, particularly whether mm. it's mental health or there was a particularly interesting paper about bone health and reducing bone health, um, bone density loss in early postmenopause. Um, so a particular strain of it was three types of lactobacilli okay. I can't remember the exact names yeah, yeah. of them but again I can send you the paper on that um, and it showed that it, it, it minimised loss um, and stabilised um, bone density in, in women who were in the early stages of menopause which is really fascinating. That is, yeah, um, absolutely. So, and it was a it was a particular strain. I think it might not even be available in the UK, but um, yeah. there's more research needed. And I've had some fascinating conversations with a pharmacist in Canada who I who I connected with on social media. Um, who this is her area of research, and so we've been chatting about that. So brilliant, brilliant. I mean, from from everything that I I'm, I'm hearing, it's it's about looking after your gut, having tons of different types of fiber a plant-focused diet um, and supplementing on an individual yeah. basis. Um, well, the sea buckthorn was the other thing. Oh, and actually on probiotics, there is there is some, sometimes some, there's some evidence for vaginal um, vaginal health because the vaginal pH changes post-menopause. So mm. women sometimes have become more um, likely to develop, you know, things like bacterial vaginosis mm. and things like that because of the overgrowth of the less you know, favorable um, kind of bacteria and things like that. Um, so there, there is some supplements out there, some probiotics that can be helpful in restoring that. Interesting. Um, as, but equally, the estrogen, if you have local estrogen, that can help restore that natural balance. Yes. It comes, again, down to a very... It comes down to, down very, to the estrogen changes, yeah. right? And, yeah. it's the, and, it, and it's just on an individual recommendation. Sea mm. buckthorn oil, there's some evidence that that's helpful for mucous membrane health. Interesting. Um, well, so something that you take orally? Yeah, so you can get capsules, a bit like kind of omega-3 capsules, but you can also get an oil. Um, that, that can be helpful... In, in terms of either vaginal health, but also just skin health generally and eye health. And I first came across that when I was doing an ophthalmology job. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and it was being recommended to a lot, a lot of women who I think now were perimenopausal were coming in with dry eyes and difficult ah, symptoms. interesting. And it seemed to really help them. So I'm definitely going to look into that because I have a sea buckthorn uh, drink that okay. I got from a food <laughs> festival recently. So I, re I read a little bit about sea buckthorn and how it's like super, super high in um, a vitamin C, I think. Mm. Uh, and and a couple other phytonutrients so i just tried to put it in my um 
It's really popular in Brazil, I think. Is it? Okay. Yeah, it's a, really randomly. Um, so I, I just put it in um, water, almost like a cordial, but it doesn't have any added sugar in. Um, and it gives like a, a uh, an exotic sort of citrus note to your water. And it's, it tastes delicious. I really yeah. like it. Ooh, but it's, it's not to everyone's liking. It can be no. a bit bitter. Um, so you can get the capsules, yeah. You can get the capsules, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Hannah, that was amazing. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. You're doing a lot of stuff with the RCGP, improving uh, other GPs' knowledge of, of menopausal health and, and POI in general. Um, and you, you, do you do work with the DAISY? Is it the DAISY, Daisy Network? network. Yes, yeah. yeah, so the DAISY Network's a charity for women with premature ovarian insufficiency. Mm -hmm. So that can be whether it's naturally just occurred. Um, so some, some girls in their teenage years will will be diagnosed. So somebody as young as 13, 12, mm. sometimes um, they never may fully have their periods, but then they're found to be almost postmenopausal in their mm. teenage years, which obviously is a very difficult thing, but they would support people through that or girls and women who've had cancer treatment. So the chemotherapy or radiotherapy has, a, has a, 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 you know, affected their ovarian function mm. or people like me who've had treatment for, you know, endometriosis and PMDD. Mm. But anybody essentially under the age of 40 um, is, is there to provide information and support. So um, there's a few of us who are kind of volunteer doctors. So we kind of do online chats for DAISY Network members. Fantastic. And we do that uh, twice a month. So if you remember, you can just log on to, to this chat and ask questions. It's probably not the perfect format, but it's the kind of what we can offer at the moment. But I yeah. think it can be helpful for people. And every Amazing. year there's a there's a Daisy Network conference where people meet generally at Chelsea and Westminster. Oh yeah. Um, and it's a day of discussion and then support and workshops, and they have talks on nutrition and mindfulness and dealing with infertility and and all of that kind of That's stuff. That's amazing. So, I had no idea. Yeah, so, around the corner from us. Yeah, so, no, so I think it's the sixth of June this year. I okay, think that's great. when it is. So yeah, so we do that. Epic. And well, well, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes as well. Please, do. I'm mindful. I know we've spoken for ages. Just we haven't really mentioned the breast cancer thing with HRT. Yeah. Just wanted to say very quickly, mm. this is the one thing that puts most women off taking HRT. Mm. Um, there is a small risk associated with HRT use. Again, it depends on which form of HRT, how big or small that risk is. Mm -hmm. But in the grand scheme of things, the risk of, of developing breast cancer as a result of HRT use is so small compared to kind of the benefits you talked about. But also it's just it's minimal compared to people who, and you know, the other risk factors like being overweight. If you drink alcohol mm. every night, a small glass of wine is a bigger risk factor than taking HRT. And if you don't exercise, so it's uh, there's a brilliant infographic that I generally talk about with people. Mm. Um, and it's about putting everything in context. It's not something I want to just say, oh, don't worry about it at all, because it's exactly. something that needs yeah. to be talked about. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 not as black and white as if you get this, you definitely have this increased yeah. risk. Or yeah. um, you, and, and, But I think that's sometimes what clouds people. And sure. yeah. the stuff that came out last year in The Lancet, um, when they were talking about, oh, they, it shows, that, you know, it showed, yes, that there's a small increased risk with ongoing use. Mm but we have to put it into perspective. And I've even got patients who've had a history of breast cancer who choose to be on HRT because mm -hmm. of the other quality the of life issues. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. But obviously not everyone would want to take it or there may be a strong family history and that. Yeah. I think the lifestyle stuff then is particularly important. Mm -hmm. There are other things that can help acupuncture. There's slight like evidence base there, a CBT. Um, it's just accessing these things yes. sometimes. Mm. The SSRI, so some of the antidepressants can be helpful in terms of um, reducing the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flushes and mm -hmm. things. So I'd, I don't want anybody to think there's not an option if you've had a hormone dependent cancer, mm. but if that's the case, you just see a menopause specialist because yeah. it requires a specialist knowledge really. So. Yeah. 
brilliant. Thanks. <laughs> I think that would be super useful for a lot of people. I well, I, I hope so. I, and I just, I want people to think, even if they're in a dis- desperate situation, know that they're not alone and that mm. there's there's always something that you can do, whether mm. it's a combination of pharmaceutical things or HRT or alternatives mm. to HRT or mm. lifestyle, there's all supplements. Um, there, there's there, there's always something that can be done and you're not kind of alone. And yeah. the other thing is, is alcohol, briefly, that a lot of people do not realise how much of an impact that can have on, yeah. on menopausal symptoms, not only disrupting the, the gut microbiome, because mm. it can cause gut dysbiosis if you have a lot of that, mm. but... Um, uh, really is can be a trigger for things like hot flushes and the mood related symptoms yeah. and often i find if people aren't they may be making other lifestyle changes they might be on an appropriate hrt but mm. things still aren't settling quite often it's the it's the alcohol and it may not even be that much or yeah. they might not consider it that much it yeah. may be one small glass of wine every other day it's enough can to disrupt things impact. for them yeah, absolutely so. yeah I really hope you enjoyed the podcast with Dr. Hannah Shaw. She is an incredible person, a massive patient advocate, and I just think one of the most empathic doctors I've had on the podcast for sure. And I think certainly the patient experience of herself has has really impacted the way in which she treats patients. Um, She's just brilliant. To summarize, a plant-focused diet is certainly something to go for, getting lots of different colors in your diet as well. So greens, the reds, the rainbow of colors that we always talk about here. Different types of fibers are particularly important when it comes to improving and nurturing the gut microbiota that can have impacts on your estrogen metabolism, as well as the disposal of extra estrogens that you can find in your body. It's more about estrogen fluctuation rather than the quantity of estrogen. And for that reason, soy may be a beneficial ingredient to have postmenopausally uh, as it's had uh, as it has phytoestrogenic effects which can have generally positive effects on on the body as well um, we talked a bit about hrt and we're going to repeat that kind of stuff but i think it really comes down to the individual the age at which hrt is started um, and the uh, you know the different gen- genetic differences in your own personal history as well overall i'm i'm quite um Uh, happy with recommending certain supplements to certain people but i think across the board omega-3 id and vitamin d are are things that we need to be having a conversation about Um, and yes the benefits of probiotics are still to be found out i guess Um, but i think probiotics from food is definitely a win so sauerkraut kimchi uh, and other fermented foods including tempeh I really hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast this uh, week. Um, we spoke at length about a whole bunch of different symptoms, uh, a whole bunch of different topics. Um, please do check out thedoctorskitchen.com. You'll find all the links to what we chatted about uh, on the website and do sign up to the newsletter where you can find weekly science-based recipes plus much more information to help you lead healthier, happier lives. Give this a five-star rating if you enjoyed it. Please share it with whoever you think would benefit from it. There's a lot of people who've asked for this episode so i hope we've given it justice see you next time
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 